Just another day like any other, except it was the first day after I knew about pregnancy. And I felt this fear for the first time ever. I remember thinking, how can I bring a child into a world like this? How can, how can a person grow up with all this around them? I told her I didn't want to have it. And over the next few weeks, I wore her down. I want to have children. Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Bechdel, the podcast about film and feminism. I'm your host, Contrera. I've said that more than 50 times now. I'm getting quite good at it. Um, I'm here with Nick again. Hi, Nick. Hi. Uh, it's very high-pitched. Hi. <laughs> Nicholas, not Nicola. Um, and I always ask Nick to come and speak to me when we review an entire series. We have previously looked at the entire Harry Potter film universe. No, yeah. not well. We have talked about Fantastic Beasts, but the the films one to eight. Um, what else have we looked at yeah. in the series that we've talked about on the podcast? Do we talk about Marvel? So, yes, we, we, we watched 22, 23 yeah. Marvel Cinematic Universe films. And I think it's always good because I always like you to be on this podcast as the sole representation of the white male filmic patriarchy. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and just to remind people, um, Nick has a degree in film and used to make films now you just watch them yeah I just yeah that, that's a long time ago that career left me by <laughs> uh, but you could have been you could have been a contender I think I could I'm pretty sure I would have won at least what two at least two maybe certainly one Oscar yeah for di- for direction yeah probably and producing acting <laughs> um, and you understand things about 15 degrees and 180 degrees and various cinematographic yeah. concepts but you have a quite an encyclopedic memory for film i would say it's not bad um it's not it's not i don't think it's um, I, don't think, I wouldn't call it encyclopedic i think it's not bad okay better better than most um and you also um will watch anything oh, yeah. within reason yeah yeah have you ever refused to watch anything? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think there's very few films I wouldn't at least try. Even like The Human Centipede 4 or whatever is Human Centipede um, Well, actually, that's a good point. I think once you get into sort of third rate, third sequels of an initial films that I was never a big fan of anyway, once you start getting into colon territory... <laughs> you know, that's, that's like Terminator It's like films, title, yeah. colon, and then something else. Oh, like that's, that's, that's when I start to okay. sort of get a bit suspicious. Your colon doesn't like colons. Um, so, I've invited you here today, because we t- last time we talked on the podcast was about Tenet. That was a successful mm. episode because a lot of people, I think, hadn't seen the film and wanted to hear me talk for 20 minutes solid just trying to explain the plot. But I know you didn't think that was great podcasting, but apparently it was. Well, I stand corrected. Because we had lots and lots of listeners. Um, and um, there's been a lot of furore and kind of interest around uh, this male filmmaker recently because he is soon to have his first film, I think, in six years 
Witches, released, I think, on Netflix shortly. A black and white film called Mank, and this is the film director David Fincher. Mm-hmm. So I saw lots of um, articles about him and um, listened to some other podcasts, and I thought, I'm a feminist, I like film, I really like David Fincher. Yeah. Can I align all of these feelings? Because is he a feminist filmmaker? Does he treat his female cast well? on and off screen I wasn't sure but I did realize that he has only made I would say nine films of his own plus one where he took over from someone Alien yeah. 3 do you know can you explain a little bit about the first film he was involved with well that was Alien 3 I, I think yeah. he was I, I could be wrong about this so but I, I believe he, he started out doing music videos and I think that, that's a sort yeah, of starting position lots of things um, um, and adverts and ad- yeah, it yeah. Make, which makes sense because his films do have that, a certain sort of style about them. But anyway, yeah, Alien 3 was just, I, I think it just encountered endless amounts of production problems. And um, Hollywood, Hollywood... Was he supposed to make it first? No, I don't think so. I, I don't recall who the original director was, but it was one of those relatively rare instances where Hollywood execs stepped in and fired the director, which doesn't happen very often. You carry on talking while I Google. Um, and uh, he was brought in to effectively finish it off. Um, I believe under... DGA rules that would require him to have filmed a certain percentage of the film, probably around 70%. So he probably... DGA being Directors Guild of America. Yeah. So he probably does... He probably could... He can lay claim to it, and he is on the credits as director. But I... It's under his Wikipedia Yeah. I I just never really consider it to be a a David Fincher film. Um, I think he was just brought in to to do a job, did the job. Um, But I'm not sure how he really feels about that film, or classifying it as one of his own. Well, it certainly got him into the big leagues, let's say. Well, wouldn't we all just like to take over a a doomed alien production and that's how we make it in? I mean, you know, it's easy. So apparently, the director who I've never heard of, who was going to make Alien 3, is called Vincent Ward? Does his name mean anything to you? I don't believe so, no. Um, New Zealand director... um, What's he made? This is the podcast where I search Wikipedia. (laughs) Live, what fun. Um, he helped write the script, yeah. I think. And you know what? Let's not go into too much detail. Something went wrong. Fincher came on board. He's quite historically known as well because I think he worked for Industrial Light and Magic and he knows nah. Spielberg or George Lucas or both of them or something. So had a little bit of a leg up, but still. Um, I haven't seen Alien 3, and so I decided not to watch it for this. Yeah. Because you and I agreed that we would only review Fincher's catalogue of his nine films made somewhat in his control. Yeah. With him as Makes a director. Sense. And boy, was this a journey. <laughs> nine films. So, we will start in 1995, which was three years after Alien 3, where David Fincher made... Seven. Yes. Right, first things first. Remembering the name of the podcast. Uh, You briefly think of the plot while I tell uh, the uh, listeners that uh, Seven does not pass the Bechdel test. Okay. Which is a... Not a shock for a second, Mm -hmm. given the few number of characters and the only 
woman in it who isn't someone who dies is Gwyneth Paltrow and spoiler she dies too um so do you want to briefly give the plot very briefly yeah very briefly it is a police detective sort of thriller based around a couple of um well a sort of old hand detective played by Morgan Freeman and a sort of new detective who's sort of run the who's been on the beat for a few years and this is his first real uh, job as a detective um, investigating a sequence of murders by a serial killer that seemed to have some sort of link into the seven deadly sins. Um, the idea being that he, uh, the, the serial killer kills one person, it's something to do with gluttony or something to do with greed and so on and so forth. Um, and their job is just fe- effectively to catch him. Um, so they end up sort of chasing him through the entire film and ultimately, am I allowed to give the ending away? Or Yeah, I think... Um... If you haven't watched Seven, I don't know yeah, why you're I mean, listening to this podcast. Yeah, I mean, it is 25 years ago now. Go and um, watch Seven. Ultimately, they do catch him. However, it turns out to be a bit of a ruse. The, by the way, the killer's played by um, Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey. Uh-oh. Yeah, indeed. Um, it turns out to be a bit of a ruse where Brad Pitt's wife, uh, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, yes. um, turns out to be one of the victims. Because there are five deadly sins murders committed. Yeah. And then this is how they work out the final two. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Which, so, yeah, yeah which, so, so effectively, he, the, the, the serial killer Kevin Spacey, kills Gwyneth Paltrow and then presents her head to um, Brad Pitt, who's obviously not very happy with the fact that his wife had his head cut off. Had her head, had her head cut off. And does some great acting going, oh, Yeah, he's very upset, I, very uh, upset. Uh, and then he kills Kevin Spacey, thus completing the sequence of seven, um, the seven murders, because that was a murder committed in anger, or wrath, I suppose it would be, yeah. Funny you should say that. That was going to be my next question. Mm. How do you say that word? Because I say wrath, and I'm going to keep saying wrath, and you can say wrath. Dave Lee Roth. <laughs> uh, I don't think there's a correct way, is there? Yeah, my way. Um... <laughs> Uh, what did you think of Seven on the rewatch? Uh, uh, yeah, it stands up quite well, actually. It, I, I do, I mean, just as a general observation, there were some things about it at the time which quite mentioned, which I'd, I'd forgotten about, what, the fact that it's raining throughout the entire Constantly film. in this no-name city, which is like Chicago, New York, yeah, slash Gotham City. Could be anywhere, really. But apparently it's a city that's totally gone to the dogs. Yeah, that's the idea, anyway. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's a sort of stylistic choice to sort of film it all in the rain. That must have been a quite difficult thing to do, unless you... I don't know. Um, They're not outside that often. No, I suppose They're not. in buildings or... Um, but I think it's a very... It's got a very complete um, story arc, in, in a way, uh, which is something I'm sure we'll talk about more um, in this podcast, or I hope we do. Um, it, it's, it's the, now would be a good time. Well, it's the, <laughs> it's the first example of what I... Of, 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 a sort of a complete David uh, David Fincher story arc, as opposed to an incomplete David Fincher story arc. For which, well, that's coming later. It, yeah? is, it is. It is. Yeah. Whereby everything is Don't set spoil up. Spoil your spoilers. Everything is set up. You go through all the murders, and then ultimately the final conclusion, the third act, as it were, sort of fits in. It completes the story in a, in a, in a very sort of satisfying way, or unsatisfying if you happen to um, not like um, bad guys winning. Um, but it, but it, 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 I think, I think it just works in the sense that they had a point, they had a point to make, and made it very well. So anyone who's listened to previous episodes of the podcast will know that you really like ambiguity ordinarily. Yes, that's in true. cinema, but I think with David Fincher films. You don't want ambiguity. Or mm. it's not quite as paramount. Interesting. Because, yeah. And I think it's because 
you want that because he sets up an arc. Mm. There's a difference between a movie where you don't know what's going to happen and it might still be open-ended, but there is definitely a, a story arc to every Fincher film. Yeah. He has a setup, yeah. he has some reveal in the middle, and then there's a kind of... the, the, the pressure gets up it's it's textbook screen writing mm. and i wonder if that's why for you whether you like or don't like his filmography you actually do want you do feel like there is a sense of an ending to be had in every one of the films um i think i i think david fincher works best when he puts an ending on the film properly but when he when he ties it all up nicely um, Shall we go straight to the ending of Seven and mm. the 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 very ending though because isn't this a little bit problematic? So most people who have watched the film, when asked what the what the ending to Seven is, will say that it's actually Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box, which no one ever sees, but there is a brief flash which uh, he will utilise later, David Fincher, um, in his cinema uh, in his cinematography of his films, um, and then. Uh, Kevin Spacey is shot by Rob Pitt, as you just said. Yeah. But that is actually not the final scene of Seven. No, the final yeah. scene is a tacked-on ending that I believe, from my favourite place, Wikipedia, um, Morgan Freeman has this scene where he uh, quotes uh, quotes a poem or something, and he says, "What is it? I believe." I believe this is a world worth... No, sorry, I believe this is a horrible world and it's a world worth saving. Mm. And then he says, I agree with the latter part. Mm. And then he kind of walks off into the rain. And there is an assumption that you and I discussed off mic that he's probably back to being a detective where the start of the movie, he was he was trying to retire because yeah, he's seen indeed. too many horrible things. And Fincher was required by the studio to put that in. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, and he wanted to just end it with the shot, which I would have much preferred. Mm. Nowadays, actually, 1995, did I say? Yeah. I bet you I wouldn't have. So I actually understand the studio's move. But I don't think cinema had gotten to that I mean, point. It, I mean, point it might, well, I mean, it, I think it might just or in my fractionally life. sweeten the ending, fractionally, but it really doesn't change the fundamental of the film, I don't think. So you're not as bothered? Well, I, I think if you... If, if you're gonna, if you get forced to tack on an ending, um, some films when that happens, um, it, it kind of fundamentally changes things. Like the, the, the great cinematic example is always Blade Runner, the, the theatrical release of Blade Runner, where they, mm -hmm. they didn't, where he was forced to tack on an ending, which changed mm. everything. Um, hence, you know, uh, the uh, Ridley Scott director's cut and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And I think in Seven's case, at least, that if that is a tacked on ending, uh, then. It, it doesn't really change the fundamental. At the end of the day, Brad Pitt is probably going to face jail time for what he did. Um, we can get to the morality um, of it. In a bit, Gwyneth if Paltrow, want. who's you know an innocent character in this whole in this whole film, mm. is killed, um, and the the serial killer achieves what he wanted to achieve. So effectively, he's, he has still effectively won in inverted well, commas. Well, here we go. So let's have, let's have those two conversations. So mm. first, let's talk about Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. Um, do you, how well do you think Fincher serves her character in Seven? On the basis that this film does not pass the Bechdel test and has basically one female character. I think I think it. she's brought... She, I think she, she exists as, as the sort of um, 
the nice face of humanity in that film. Um, she, she's she's mm. the, she's the one that she's very winning. Yeah, I mean she she's she's nice, she's kind, um, and and she she presents that the world worth fighting for sort of face. So when you see her killed, that that's that's kind of the ultimate. Um, kicking the teeth. Well, really. we don't see her, but well, yeah. you don't see her. Um, them, but... There is a softness to the character. Mm. She's also the bridge between Freeman and Pitt's characters because they basically—I didn't remember this from the first time—they basically don't like each other for like the first half of the film. They don't want to work together. They both want to run the case on their own. Well, it's, it's, and I'd forgotten about that. Well, friction. it's a classic sort of detective trope, true, isn't it? The, the, the grizzled old warrior and the new boy, and mm. them not getting along. It, it, in, in a way, if they did get along, it would be less interesting to watch. Well, but I, I'd, if I'd have been summarising it before seeing it recently, I wouldn't have remembered their animosity. And that's what she's there for. Mm. So I suppose we need to ask ourselves, a female character whose only role is to be the bridge, how much is that? is Fincher putting forward the case for feminism? He's well, not thinking yeah, about I, I, I mean, I, I think if you're looking for a... A, a strong female character there. I don't think she is. No, right. Firstly, let me talk to you about strong female character. Mm. That's sexist in itself. Is it? Because that is a trope. <laughs> yeah, do you see what I mean? It's like, well, I say it as well, but it's like, I'm just saying, could you make this story with Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt being played by Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett? Yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah. But nobody was doing that in 1995. Mm. And I think that what... Um, Paltrow does with her time is very good and I don't think Fincher what I've discovered during this rewatch is that he does not dislike women or think they have no value it's just he is drawn primarily and not always but primarily to character stories and the characters of men not always as we'll see later on but if you're only focusing on narrow characters then the scope for using women on film just becomes diminished. Mm. But again, still, as I said at the beginning, I'm I'm not offended by the film because the story is these two cops and it's not really about them being men. It's about, yeah, I suppose it's about loss of faith in humanity because at the end there's a really pivotal scene that I found actually on the rewatch more interesting than the whole head in the box which is you realize that Morgan Freeman and Kevin Spacey's characters share the exact same world view mm. yeah. except one is like the good cop and the other is a psycho killing murderer yeah and it's I found that that was the quintessential thing that Fincher wants to put Message that Finch puts in his movie. Yeah, again, not a, not not a. I've seen that. I've seen that in other films as well. It's. I think in other films, not not his film. Yeah, I mean, I think Heat was released the same year, and I you, oh, you was. Saw, it? Yeah, I think mm. I think Al Pacino and Robert De Niro occupied that space yeah. in that film where they both have had similar experiences. One, of them, they're just two sides of the same coin, opposite sides mm. of the law. Um, I do think that. I mean, going back to Seven and Gwyneth Paltrow, I do think that she, yeah. she sort of in a way, is that the redemption for particularly Morgan Freeman, who has lost his faith. And I think the difference between Morgan Freeman and Kevin Spacey, the serial killer, ultimately, is that he, he, he sees something of a redemption quality in her. 
that the, the, the world is worth saving and she and yeah. she comes to personify that but i think it is worth saving for men because morgan freeman talks to her about some issue he had with a previous woman who was pregnant and he was so scared about bringing the baby into yeah. the world and then she had a termination it's a very it's a, it, in a way it's a beautiful story about an older black man and a younger white woman having this conversation about a really difficult subject babies and abortion so you could say that's quite progressive but in another sense for some reason Gwyneth Paltrow is only talking to a woman only talking to Morgan Freeman in this film because she doesn't seem to have a female friend yeah well I think that if Morgan Freeman had had a wife or daughter or something that might have been a nicer way yeah they threw that out there because they're, they're new to the city aren't they Brad Pitt and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow yeah. I think that's the point I still reckon um, you wouldn't go for Morgan Freeman as your well, first she, friend she kinda, lovely as he is yeah she, but she, <laughs> she goes for the first the first person that's not Brad Pitt that she can actually yeah. sort of talk to which but she doesn't to call him. her mum she's like I haven't told anyone not. I'm pregnant apparently not Morgan you've got a nice face well it, it goes even though you fucking hate the well, world it, it, it kind of goes down this this sort of path of, of her sort of um, you know expressing her innermost feelings to Morgan Freeman who is acting very surprised by this saying god this is an awful world and you don't really know me that well yeah why at you, least he's the why audience are, why, standing. Are you, why are you telling me this <laughs> Um, to which her sort of unspoken, I think, response is, well, this is what people do. This is what good people do. You know, right. we talk, we communicate. Uh, and I think that that, that is the, a, a key turning point. Or not a turning point, but it's a key difference, I think, between Morgan Freeman and ultimately Kevin Spacey's view of the world, which is that there is something worth saving in it as far as he's concerned. Yeah, I think that... Um... People will say that David Fincher films are dark, but I think there is always lightness through the dark. Mm. I, I never come out of his films feeling depressed. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't feel like joyous for the state of the world, but there is a certain like elation, like a, like a I don't know, like a cathartic elation yeah. that he takes you on a journey. Yeah. And I think that even after the end of Seven, I think I should be feeling depressed because it is still quite sad. Yeah. But the little Morgan Freeman um, tag on and also the fact that we're living through a world which is quite stressful at the moment yeah. actually made me think, you, you know what, that was entertaining and it did show the bad side of humanity. But I think that um, I think that Brad Pitt's character as well is, is a nice guy. He he's a laugh and he's silly and that comes out in later Fincher films as well. He is. And I thought I would say, I mean, my interpretation of him is that he is, you know, the young Morgan Freeman. He, he's Morgan Freeman as he joins the force. I think that, that, that was the, that was the what I, my takeaway from that. Yeah, idealistic. Thinks that he can, you know, solve, so, all, solve crime. all the crimes. Yeah. And uh, whereas Morgan Freeman's a, bit, a little bit more jaded by then. Yeah. There's a kind of, this will happen to you at the end. Mm. Um, we'll probably rank these all by the end, but you're quite high on yeah, the seven. Yeah, I think I think yeah. for what I, what I would consider to be his first genuine full feature, mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's a pretty strong first effort. Yeah, and I think it has one of the things that is a hallmark of Fincher's work, which is like a, um, like not intellectual, but a kind of thought provoking plot with this idea about the seven deadly sins being mm. the way the people died and the people that Space's character chooses. Yeah. Um, so you get that, which is a hallmark, and you also get the lighting, or should I say the lack of lighting, which I think is a hallmark of a lot of Fincher's films. Yeah. It's a very dark film. Very. Yeah, a lot of inside where um, 
the walls are painted dark as well so it's not even just dark it's also inside I was trying to come up with a color scheme for every David Fincher films because I think some directors I think I've said this previously about Ang Lee some directors like to I think they like to paint each of their films a slightly different color mm. the thing with Fincher is that he he's got a certain palette and it's like a yellow green blue <laughs> he like he likes those brown, a lot. yeah you're not seeing saying. a lot of brown you're not seeing you, <clears throat> well maybe but I'd say I'd say it's more I don't know yeah greeny blue darkness for <laughs> seven but you don't really see red I'm not sure I can even think about the colour red in a David Finch film, which is quite funny because so many of them do include blood. Mm, true. But um, I think I think he got to do almost everything he wanted to do in his first film that he made. I, I, all, all I see in these, these films that, that follow this are bigger budgets. I think this film, like you said, stands up to the test of time and I don't think you could make it any better with another... I just, 50 million no well I, I think it's just a very it's a very strong script in the first instance mm. um, um, very complete very good three act structure so to speak and we decided it was original yeah it was an original screenplay uh, I don't know actually yeah I think it probably was yeah. but I mean I can't I can't say for sure mm. um, <clears throat> yeah and just goes to show if you get a, a, a good script you get four good actors stroke actresses um, you know, with a good with good dialogue, you'll get good, and you're always going to get good performances. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So you think it comes from the script? So Fincher, well, he doesn't seem to write his own films. It'd be quite interesting when Mank comes out because that was written by his father. And I'm right. sure he did some work on it, and I don't know whether his father's still alive. Um, uh, he was an actor and right and screenwriter. Um, Jack Fincher. I. I can't remember what I was going to say, so I'll cut out this bit of the screenplay. Of the screenplay? Of the podcast? Oh, my God. Um, so, in conclusion, mm-hmm. excellent first movie, Striking yeah. Out Alien 3. Quintessential David Fincher movie. Yeah, definitely. That goes in on, like, there's some quite disgusting scenes with the... Um, Greed or no, the gluttonous, the gluttony character, which I think is the screenwriter uh, in a fat the, suit. And the lust as well. I thought it was some pretty grim stuff. Oh, there. yes. Sorry. Oh, my God. Yes. We have to talk about that. Um, uh, a, a not, a, well, you don't see anything, though, do no, you? No, you to don't. To be fair, he conjures no. up such a well, scene by that point. But, to give him yeah. some credit. Right. Yeah. It is, we know, we know it, that apparently that, that that murder is committed by. A woman wearing a dildo that has a knife. Is that right? Or something pointy and well, sharp and what wearing, have you. A... I thought, I know, I thought he has to shag the woman. Yeah, he does. Uh... Oh, he, sorry. So, yes. <laughs> I don't understand how sex no, works. I, he puts a dildo on top of his own cock, but it happens to have this ever. Yes, and he fucks her to death because Kevin Spacey's character does not like uh, this particular prostitute. Well, I think he's just picked her out, hasn't he? Yeah, um, which is another form of misogyny mm. because basically he's just decided that someone selling their body, yeah, is is uh, a sin. Yeah, it, well, it is according to the Seven Deadly Sins, or, or well, uh, not, not, not lust. I think lust is more about don't covet thy neighbor's neighbor's ox. wife stroke ox. <laughs> Don't yeah. cover my neighbour's ox. Yeah. Um, it depends what you want to do with the ox. Yeah, it does really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you what, you are right about the fact that it, 
it's wisely kept out of sight that scene um it's you, only a guy you, relaying think, it in the interview I, I suspect you come it's one of those scenes where i suspect you come away from it thinking you've seen a lot more than you really have yeah. he conjures up so much with people talking about things and this kind of cutting in mm. photography uh yeah cinematography um yeah i i don't think this is a feminist masterpiece but i do think it's an exceptionally entertaining movie mm-hmm. of its time and i don't think it's detrimental to women on camera yeah. i just think it doesn't um elevate them to the level of the male characters but i also think that sometimes the script doesn't can't do that you could give her a friend good Paltrow's character I don't know what else you do. The, the Deadly Sins, if I remember rightly, two, two are women, because there's, there's a woman who's uh, a model and, and decides she'd cut off her... What is it? She, um, do you remember? It's, which one is that? Oh, um, isn't it like... Um, she... Is it Envy? Is it Envy? <clears throat> it might be Envy. And it's where she's um, obsessed yeah. with what she looks like. I think she's a model. And then she, um, she dies rather than having to um, hurt her own face. Yeah. So that's the... She feels to me a slightly better example of someone who, like, not deserves it. But do you know what I mean? Is is I can see where Spacey's character would think they deserve it. Yeah. Whereas I think someone who's a prostitute, I think that they should, she should be strapping on the dildo and shagging the customers, and maybe that's where it should have <laughs> happened. But anyway, um, that would have been that's how I would rewrite this with a slightly <laughs> more feminist take. Um, but all in all, good first film. Yeah. Good first film. Is he going to do better? You take two sugars, right? Never mind. My name's not Christine. It's, I mean, it's not my real name. Who fucking cares? It's just money. You should be glad you're alive. I'd rather not talk about it right now. All I mean is someone like you. How many times have you done this? I'm curious. What? These scams, con games, how many? Lots. Well, whatever nickel-dime bullshit you pulled in the past, this is more than just me. This is pension plans, payrolls. This is $600 million. Next on our list comes, do you know? Um, I'm going to guess at the game. You are 100% correct. The game was made in 1997, so a mere two years after Seven, and uh, this time period should probably be reflected upon because Fincher doesn't always make a movie movie every two years. The game. Yeah, the game. Um... I enjoyed watching this a lot because it's the one in the catalogue I'd seen the least, other than ones I hadn't actually seen at all, which I hadn't seen Panic Room, which is hilarious because that's probably the most pro-feminist one of all of them. Um, Right, I'll start the game. You interrupt me if I don't get everything (laughs) right with the plot. Um, This... um, this might pass the Bechdel test, but only in one of these very brief, a woman talking to a woman as part of the game. It, it does have quite a few compelling, well, some compelling female characters, mm-hmm. but it also suffers from the same fate um, 
as Seven does, which is primarily it's about one man mm-hmm. played uh, called Nick, played by Michael Douglas, because I think you'll find all evil people are called Nick in movies. Well, okay. Yeah, and maybe in real life. Um, the game. <laughs> so um, Nick is an investment banker or something of that nature. He's not quite his Gordon Gecko character, but he's rich and he has a com- family company. Yeah. And uh, coincidentally... A Fincher motif comes into this, which is we see at the beginning of the film a brief, like, old school, what do you call it, like, um, Super 8-style video... Uh, yes, we do, yes. ...of um, a very rich kid's party, which you presume is Michael Douglas's next party when he's, like, I don't know, 10 or something. And in this video, at the end, suddenly his dad has flo- thrown himself off of the roof mm-hmm. of their massive mansion and is dead on the floor. So you already kind of get a, a sense that this is a typically traumatising David Fincher movie. Um, it is Nick's birthday and he is probably, I don't know, I think he's 48 or something and it's the same age that his dad killed himself. He is divorced and lives on his own with his made and basically goes through a a nice but boring high-level company job. Sean Penn, his brother, gives Nick a business card for a company called CRS, Consumer Recreation Services, and uh, Nick decides to find out what this is with some toing and froing and basically he is now involved in the game, which is some kind of forerunner to an escape room where things happen, things are dropped off in his house and he gets keys. Yeah, probably the point there is he has no idea. <coughs> he has no idea what what the game is, other than that he is apparently playing it. And he meets various characters who seem to get him into strange scrapes that get more and more thrilling and dangerous, including a waitress played by Deborah Cara Unger. And um, the, the movie is focused on the audience trying to work out whether someone is actually out to get him or is he still playing an incredibly dangerous game. Mm. And yes. then by the end of the movie, we're now ready for spoiler territory. Things get so bad that Nick um, fires a gun at his brother. I'm going to find out his brother's name because I feel like I need to say that. Comrade fires a gun at Comrade and thinks that he's killed him. And then he throws himself off of a building. And apparently that was always going to happen because that was the point of the game. And he lands on a huge... What do you call that? Trampoline mat well, thing? Well, it's one of those things that they use... That, that, when people that, throw themselves yeah, off that things. Yeah, fire brigades use to catch you when, you, when they get yes. people jumping off buildings. Excellent. And um, uh, he lands in the middle of his birthday party. Um, and that's kind of mm. the thus, end of the thus, movie. Thus sort of illustrating that everything you saw, pretty much everything, was all part of the game. Yeah. Um, this film is radical. And I remember when I saw it the first time, I was so annoyed. <laughs> and I wasn't in the slightest bit annoyed this time because I had the benefit of hindsight because I remembered vaguely the ending, but I hadn't remembered all the ins yes. and outs. And it's quite a long movie. 
where it felt long. So let's have a look. 128 minutes. Yeah, so more mm. than two hours. And um, it it was very bold. It was a bold choice after Seven because he kind of, Fincher, was in an M. Night Shyamalan kind of land here, wasn't he? After The Sixth Sense where it's like, mm. you've made this film with this epic twist. What do you do for your next project? Yeah. And this was, I believe, based on book. Um, and this is a real caper and it really upends what the rich and famous can do with their lives. Yeah, it does. Did you like the game? Oh, did I like the game? Um, <clears throat> I didn't hate the game. Um, it's, it's a middle-of-the-road film to me. Oh. I don't think it's particularly exceptional. Um, I think in the main... Well, first of all, it requires you to really, really suspend your disbelief that, that such things are possible, given the, the, the level of uncertainty of things that happen. Now, that's fine. I think you can do that. I, I think if you buy into that, if you buy into all these things are possible, yeah. then you, you're probably going to say, well, OK, it, it rolls along quite nicely. But I think at some point it starts to meander. Um, there's only so many times when someone can you know, leave a key in your pocket or you find a clown dummy in your home. There's only so many of those scenes rolled one on top of the other before it starts to get repetitive. And, you know, oh, here we go again, another one. And, and, and I think you've got to be careful when you're doing that. Um, so I, I think the last half an hour of, of the game, I mean, you know, before the reveal, is a bit kind of, oh, you know... Well, I think... Not what's happening here. Come on, speed up. I think you've picked on, picked up on something, but I also think it's partly because of the lack of believability. Mm. Once the things you're talking about actually start getting into life-threatening basis. Because I actually think you could have... It, it is repetitive to have lots of keys and clown dolls looking at you. But the real issue is that he's in a car crash... Um, that lands in the water in the yeah. river and he's whacked over the, no he's poisoned sorry with a drink or drugged with a drink in a yeah. um, in a cabin and then somehow he's in Mexico and he has to get back and then obviously mm. there's the whole murdering someone and, and mm. these people shooting mm. at him which I thought was very strange because everyone was acting really normal. Like, I know they have guns in America, but I'm pretty sure if people start, like, putting machine guns down your street, that would be untoward. Whereas no neighbours ever came out at any point, and he well, got shot at multiple well, times. Well, that's, that, of course, that's all part of the, the, the requirement that you have to believe this, that, yeah. that you could do this. That, that, that such a game where everybody, not just the people, the gun-toting guys, but also... Presumably, all the neighbours are, are all in yeah. on this. Yeah. Um, and as you say, there are some scenes in it where, where he is potentially his life is threatened. Now, if you believe in the concept of the game, you might say, "Yeah, but you know, when his car went into the, into the water, that there would have been divers around protecting I know, him." But, mm, it requires you to sort of buy into that whole to suspend the disbelief to buy into that. Wrong. All I of could course. think of is who's insuring yeah, this yeah, game. Yeah. Of, of course, such a thing could never really exist in reality. Yeah. But if if you accept that 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 that, that you know if you're prepared to sort of you know, make that step, then mm. um, yeah, I suppose so. Mm. Um, there are some other issues there as well, which is, I mean, as much as as, as fun as though this game might be at times, there are clearly points where it's like where um, Michael Douglas is going to be psychologically harmed by what's yes. happening 
um, without, and there's not much consideration to it. It's all a part of a game. See, it's like woo, surprise! It was, and I think, well, hang on. I mean, <laughs> I he's not going to recover from that. You're right. I think of all of his films, <clears throat> looking at the plots. This is the most unbelievable, apart from maybe the curious case of Benjamin Button, but but that's fine. Once you accept the central conceit, then you're mm. fine with that film. Everything else is actually logical. But this film is supposed to be of the time yeah. it was made. And yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Although now that we have all these um, experiential events like secret cinema and escape rooms and things like that, actually, I feel like Fincher, like, this film was a precursor to yeah. those. They, he kind of invented the concept of uh, like real life murder mystery, but the stakes are so much higher. So I actually think that watching this film in 2020, it's a lot more believable or, or a lot more possible than actually it was in 1997. Well, yeah, you're probably right about that. I, I, I still don't think... I, I still think it, it is a, a, a step well beyond reality. However, fine, it's a fiction. Yeah. If you accept that, then, then you just take it for but what it, it is. It's to the extent that you can, yeah, rest mm. and go with the movie yeah. based on whether you accept the central yeah. conceit. But, but, then, but the thing with the game is you don't you don't know all the way through until no. the very end that it's not actually people trying to... Yeah, kill. of course, and that's you, part the of the audience twist, is, isn't it? Is, he, is the audience avatar again, isn't it? You always have someone who well, that's, is that, playing you. Yeah, that's the twist of it all, which is yeah. he leads you down a certain path that this is actually a, a ruse to effectively empty his bank account because he is incredibly wealthy. Yes. Um, but... Uh, and so you, you you end up thinking, ah, oh, this isn't the, this. The game was actually let's rip off Michael Douglas. But as it turns out, that was all part of the real game, which was a big birthday present, of course. But my issue with it is, it's all has always been, apart from what I said about things being repetitive. Yeah. It, it, it's just that if you went through this, the reality of going through this is you are not just going to get over it very very quickly, um, because you, you you would be traumatized by some of it. Yeah, it, 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 I do think it does end at the right time again, going back to your ending point. But yeah, the after the ending for this is what the actual fuck is going to happen to him? But then he, but then is Conrad a genius? Because is Nick a character of such psychological density that actually he would be okay because all the way through the film that's the point he pushed his what you 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 see his ex-wife who still likes him all the women still like him nobody hates him he's very buttoned up he doesn't ever seem to feel anything because i'm guessing the catalyst for this was seeing his dad die on his birthday yeah um so you could argue a normal person would be undergoing immense psychological trauma but a person who has never experienced anything other than a kind of monotonous yeah security and happiness i'm not saying it's right I i'm mean, just saying i think that's a point that fincher is trying i mean to the, make. the only thing i can think of is that um michael douglas and sean penn um as brothers grew up playing practical jokes on each other and this oh, was just another practical joke for them a lot younger um, yeah. so I don't think they were I think he's like 15 um, years younger and, and well I mean on this so going into this subject which is really the ending mm-hmm. it, it's, it, it boils down to just a, a 30 second recap Michael Douglas having been through hell for the last sort of two hours or whatever it's been in the film yeah um, a week some yeah, months in real life thinks that everyone's out to get him <laughs> yes. so on and so forth becomes paranoid yeah. and shoots his brother 
So he's, and and then he's, yeah. uh, and then wrought with guilt commits yeah. commits suicide yeah. or thinks he's commit, committed suicide. Yeah. Whereupon he arrives at his, mm. at his party and and seriously for the next five minutes he mm. is just lapping it up with some champagne, laughing with people. Oh, you guys, this guy. Well, sort of. He's a little I, bit shell shocked. A little bit, but he's yeah. just. But he's not. It. But he has just. Yeah. He's psychologically yeah. killed his brother and committed suicide. Yeah. I just don't think you're going to be partying that hard. Yeah. It is. It is my main issue with this film, and it is a David Fincher problem for me, which is this. Oh. They did not. He did not know how to end this film. Quite clearly, this was not the correct ending for the film. The party really is just all wrong. For but me. isn't. But that isn't that the jolt. That I feel that that's what he wanted. He wants to say, he. I think the message he's making is life is how you react to events that are happening to you. And that actually, if you flip the switch into a different scenario, suddenly the bad feelings you have are good feelings. I'm not saying whether I agree with it. I don't. But I think Mm. the point is... I thought he was saying something about the rich bourgeoisie, which is when your life is so ordered and so controlled and everything is so good, like you misunderstand what proper human trauma is. Well, you could argue that, that, that he is returning to his middle, to his upper class, very wealthy life at that point. But I, what I would also say... With yeah. a new appreciation yeah, for I it, mean, which uh, is yeah, the point I think of the I think game. that's the idea, yes. Yeah. But I would also argue that the tone of the film up to that last five minutes is very dark, and then to suddenly flip yeah. it doesn't it, it just yeah. feels incorrect to me well i'd like to talk about something which i won't mm. go into too much detail because i'd like to make a whole podcast about this but one of the issues i get annoyed about in a lot of films and tv programs is the lack of understanding what's actually happened to characters and then people just continue on normally because there's another threat something else happens something else happens you're never able to deal with something yeah but under criminal law at least to some extent in the uk what he did was still a crime he intended to shoot his brother. Maybe not to kill him, but to shoot him. It doesn't matter that it wasn't a real gun and they weren't real bullets. And he was even, you could say it's some kind of provocation, but that, you know, he still had the intention of doing that. So forgetting about the psychological trauma, which is incredibly important, and I'm sure he has it as well, because it was his own brother and killing anyone should be a traumatic experience. Um he, he actually committed a crime and is capable of committing a really serious yeah, but he's crime. Very, yeah, but he's super wealthy, so he's not going to get prosecuted. The, well, well, there you go. No, I don't think anyone's <laughs> going to. I'm just going to say... I'm, I'm trying to say, is Fincher making a comment on you can get away with anything if you're rich? Which is what you just said. Yeah, you could, I think, I think that, you could draw I, that. Yeah. I think there's a commentary there. Um, but... I think my, my sort of final word on this film is it, it illustrates it is the first example of which there are a few of in my view just mm. my view David Fincher doesn't know how to always how to end a film and this is, is probably the first example of that well this isn't your podcast <laughs> and you're the film patriarchy uh-huh. so you're saying this is the final word let's talk about the women in the film which <laughs> is the actual point of this podcast <laughs> So, yes, um, there are actually quite a few female characters in this, albeit only Deborah Carr Unger's character, who is called Christine for most of the film, is the one with any real screen time. There's also the housekeeper maid, and there's also uh, Michael Douglas' ex-wife, as I alluded to. She's only really in one or two scenes. But I think it's really interesting how 
the female characters play pivotal roles and, and represent something. Again, he hasn't quite gotten to, Fincher, hasn't quite gotten to the fact that women can actually star in movies and, and um, have their own feelings and something can be about them and not how they relate to the male characters. However, yeah. here, at least he's he's got more of them. And I think particularly Christine is, you know, she's she's exciting to watch because we don't really know what she's doing at any point. And you just think she's this maid. And I think also Fincher's playing with the idea that if you put someone in the right clothes in the right position, you can turn them into the thing. Because Christine ends up being lots of different things, from, from a waitress to some kind of actress to someone yeah. who's on the breadline to someone who's part of this to someone who then drugs Douglas she has a really exciting character arc and probably shares more screen time with Michael Douglas and Sean Penn does because he's only kind of there at the beginning couple of things yeah, in the middle and the end mm. um so she's good because she's a nice little kind of constant that Nick is hanging on to throughout the film mm. and he also has the constant kind of mother figure which is the housekeeper and i think she is called i'm having a look ilsa so her character's called ilsa and she's played by carol baker and again she doesn't do much but she pops in and out to show that there is someone who genuinely cares about nick yeah even though he will not let anyone in and I think there's a lot of kind of relationships that the Nick character has with women. Yeah. And I think he's scarred from not being able to talk to his wife. Yeah. He's not like, like, there's a bit in the film where he's put in a compromising position. Uh, sorry, it, there are photos taken, taken that look like he's been in a compromising position with Christine. And it's kind of a setup. And I thought, well, when we watched the film... I got the impression that you felt the same way about me, which is I didn't feel like Nick really cared about... Um, it was about his reputation. And actually, he probably... he You thought, oh, maybe he was a seedy person who would do that kind of thing. He just dates different girls. But actually, if you step back and look at the game, I think Fincher was trying to rehabilitate Douglas's reputation because I think he was so upset. This is me thinking about this after the film, after, uh, you know, a, a few days. Yeah. I actually think you're supposed to think that Douglas's character thinks that's abhorrent behaviour. But the problem is he's so Gordon Gecko's and all of those characters and basic instinct. When's, when's basic instinct? Yeah, before this. Right, yeah. So he's he's got this kind of nasty, seedy reputation. And I'm sure that's probably what drew Fincher in. Something I haven't brought up yet, which I'd like to in this podcast, is meta narrative, which I think is what um Fincher loves to do. I think the game is a little bit about Michael Douglas's life. Hmm. Huh. Could be. Um, as we go through some of the movies, I'll give you more examples and right. you can tell me well, okay. what you think. So, yes, Bechdel test just about passes, but that's not really the point. Strong female characters, as you say. Uh, there's well. certainly female characters on screen and more than there were in Seven, but they're still acting as plot exposition points. Albeit the, the Christine character is a little bit more. That's a bit unfair. Well, she's... the. Uh... Well, I'd argue she's the, the 
the, the secondary character. I mean, ne- well, ne- next to Michael Douglas, yeah, really. Yeah, in the sense that she has the uh, next amount of screen time. Well, but she, she is also always reacting. She's also intrinsic to, to, the, to, the, to the plot in terms of sort of moving it forward here and there. Because he's a straight uh, man and he fancies her. There's a bit where yeah, she says, I think, I think, I'm not wearing any knickers. Yeah, I think... Which is both a Fincherism and designed in the game... To get him all riled up. Yeah, and I, I think she is. And I found that very blatant. She's definitely supposed to be a love interest, isn't she? Yeah. No doubt about that. A lust that. interest. A lust interest. Mm. What did you think of the female characters? I, I, I think you can discount the housekeeper. That, that's, that doesn't count. That's not a. Well, I'm clutching at straws. That, on the that's that's nothing. That's like okay. about, I don't know, two or three minutes of screen <laughs> time, hardly any dialogue. It doesn't really do anything. Which well, is a mother role, but that's not. But the, 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 well, no, the, we did have that. We had Freeman as a kind of father role. Um, so there is that. The, 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 there's uh, Michael Douglas's ex wife, who was also in it for about two or three minutes and not a lot more than that. No, she doesn't um, really make an impression, but what I enjoyed was how she still had such an affection for him. Again, the rehabilitation if you look at um uh fatal attraction well, he's an affair type person well, yeah. but actually nick in the film i think was just too closed off yeah i, th- I think I that's the that's the insinuation yeah. isn't it um that the primary the, yeah, i mean like christine is by far and away the most most sort of significant female role in the yes, film in the sense of by, there are by miles many, but at the know? same time yeah. um it, it is still i mean ultimately uh, th- th- this is a film about uh, Michael Douglas, or yeah, whoever, and, a man's and so, journey, and so yeah, and so whichever a way, rich you, whoever, man's whoever you've journey. whoever you've got in the background, whoever yeah. you, whether it's his brother or this girl he meets or whoever it is, mm-hmm. they're never going to. It's never going to be about them, no matter what. So so everybody's going to be secondary to Michael Douglas in this film. So this was really only about one character in the sense that seven yeah. was about two, yeah, two and a half. I mean, <laughs> you, you might argue it very very late on at the party that it, that that Sean Penn achieves some level of sort of equilibrium with Michael Douglas but that's about it I mean, essentially it is all about Michael Douglas's journey from being closed off to being a happy party goer champagne party goer yeah. and what he has to go through to get there and, 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 and encountering the odd girl along the way okay that, that, that's it I mean like the odd girl yeah <laughs> that's, that's basically it isn't yeah. it really okay so Fincher Essentials does this film have have puzzling in it? Very much so. Oh god, yeah. It is Isn't entirely there, a mystery box. The movie box. poster was a like. I'm sure it had Michael Douglas's face in the form of a puzzle. I'm sure it was. Oh really? A, yeah. Or, jigsaw. or a question. A jigsaw. It was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. Does what it says on the box. Um, although it is again the meta of what's a game and what isn't, because all the way through the film, Fincher says this is the game. This is the game. And when you watch it for the first time, you're not listening. Mm. It is the whole thing is the game. Yeah. So I do I do quite like that when a director's telling you. Nolan does this a lot as well, which is why I like him. Um, he tells you, and it's only on the second watch that yeah. you realise he's told you all the way through. Um, and what about light darkness cinematography? It's dark. It's dark. It's so dark. It's very a bit dark. brownie, but just dark. It is very dark. Every colour is dark. I mm. couldn't even tell you what colour it is. I don't know if it's got that much yellow, green, and blue. It's just darkness. Yeah, I mean, look. So much of it is at night as well. I I think every part. I mean, up to this point, I mean, if you had to characterise David Fincher, and even if you include Alien Three, you'd have been like, yes, dark, dark director. All Alien films are dark, yeah. Yeah. Um, Except for the neon on the walls, which was quite a cool (laughs) scene. Um, Um, He likes a little bit of neon. Well, it was that. Yeah, there was a scene where White Rabbit was playing, wasn't there? Yes. um, 
in, in that was at the very end so that, a, that was the under a black light uh, uh wasn't that the, the ending or was it did it feature twice because it was also the playing out music uh well that bit i was talking about was in uh, uh, in the it, neon in in his home where it, where, it where he puts sprayed. the black light yeah the yeah, neon he, light yeah. that's what i'm talking about yeah yeah, yeah. but he puts light. the black yeah. light on it and yeah. that flashes that uh, yes, there was a little bit of surrealism. Well, but to call that to call that colour and and, yeah. and and characterise the film as not dark because of that. No, one scene, no, I wouldn't say so. <laughs> no, I was saying kind of night neon. Do you know what I mean? The the lights you get in a club in dark horrible club light. Dark horrible club yeah, light. A, a synthetic light. Yeah. So far, he's had two films full of synthetic light. Okay, so the game better or worse than Seven? Worse. Okay, I will say. Yeah, not quite as good, a little bit indulgent, but a fantastic conceit. Mm. Have you ever heard a death rattle before? Do you think it'll live up to its name? Or will it just be a death hairball? <coughs> Prepare to evacuate soul. Tyler, of all people, think it was a bad thing that Marla Singer was about to die. A mere two years later, Fincher made his next movie, and do you know what that one is? Yes. So I would almost call these a kind of radical testosterone trilogy <laughs> okay it's about uh, men going through their man problems fight clubs definitely yeah. testosterone. and if you want to talk about the only film which is brilliant but the only film which could make me stand up and go why on earth am i putting this on my feminist podcast it's fight club yeah um yeah i've uh, if, if anything i'm willing to go down a homoerotic line <laughs> before I'm willing to talk about women. Um, so uh, I don't believe that this film passes the Bechdel test. There's only one Maybe female character Helena in it. Maybe Bonham Carter talks to herself. But yeah, it's, it's like aggressively not passing it. Um, please give us the plot of Fight Club. Okay. Um, Edward Norton um, plays a dissatisfied... Uh, I don't know what's for an insurance company. I think um, not ha- something to do with whether yeah. it's car comp, whether you should pay out the insurance. Something like that. Car. And, and he, he he works for this, knows, works for this insurance point. company. He's <laughs> dissatisfied, looking for a way to change his life, which he finds via a sequence uh, by, by going to sort of self help groups or uh, you know for for things that he doesn't have, like people things like with for testicular cancer or stuff like you know. But he goes along and he cries and he hugs people and it, and it helps him sleep and he feels better about himself. But then all that stops when he meets Marla Singer, played by uh, Helena Bonham Helen Carter. Carter. Um, because she she starts going along to the same ones as him. I and, think and they're doing up, it at the same yeah, time. And ends up sort yeah. of slightly screwing him over. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. So. Ultimately, um, one one day on a plane, he mm-hmm. he he bumps into a friend. Uh, he bumps into the, well, the guy sitting next to him. Sorry, is a guy a guy called Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt. Um, and lowest body fat ratio. He is very thin, very. I look a lot Brad like Pitt Brad Pitt, Pitt in Fight Club. Yeah, I, I should put you on this podcast yes, actually. Yes. Um, um, Edward Norton on that particular flight gets home, finds out that his home's been burnt to the ground, doesn't know why, and he he decides to call up Tyler Durden, the guy he just met on the on the flight, and that's the first time he's met him, 
and they they he goes to live with him basically in this dilapidated house and um they gradually start sort of fighting sort of recreational fighting sort of hitting each other feeling pain or some sort of description it's all kind of in good jest um, so. um and this as they do it sort of continually a little bit in public it sort of starts to attract crowds and so on and so forth and they eventually form fight club off the back off the back of that yeah as it unfolds fight club sort of evolves into what can only be described as some sort of weird urban terror movement where they start doing things like destroying corporate art and 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 really it turns into the sort of male disenfranchisement movement project mayhem project mayhem um You've missed meatloaf in it with massive Yeah, boobs. meatloaf. I in feel it like that's boobs. important. Yeah. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, Marla Singer, Helen Bob Carter, is still sort of hanging around, and she is sleeping with with Brad Pitt, uh, Tyler Durden, mm. uh, um, uh, which Ed, Edward Norton knows about, but and isn't happy with, and it, maybe it's a bit of jealousy, maybe not, maybe he's just who knows what it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, as Project Mayhem unfolds, as it begins to come off the rails, Edward Norton eventually. Are we ready for the yeah, spoilers now? It, it eventually starts to follow Brad Pitt's movements, trying to figure out what's going on, and lo and behold, because, the big reveal yeah. happens, which is as it turns out, Brad Pitt and Ed Norton. Uh, i.e. the narrator and Tyler Durden are the same person. Dun, dun, dun! Yeah. Um, at which point it all, go, all gets a bit weird and surreal. Um, well, yeah, and then we need to talk about the end. Yeah, um, as it turns out, the, the ultimate plan of Project Mayhem was to destroy all the uh, credit card companies or destroy the buildings that all the credit card companies' records are kept in so that the debt, so that debt records are all set to zero and everyone's... And because, they, because they've got so many members in Fight Club now, they can effectively control entire districts here yeah. where everyone who works the doors and everything else... So that that's the plan, which Edward Norton isn't entirely happy with, and he thinks it's an act of terrorism. So he tries to stop it, but he he but then he is stopped or attempt to be stopped by Brad Pitt. Now this is a strange concept because well, it means Brad Pitt and Edward Norton are the same person. He's fighting having a dissociative thing. Yeah. So every time he tries to stop himself, yeah. someone will say, "You told us mm-hmm. you were going to do that," which yeah. makes perfect sense if you are in fact the same yes, person. Yes, indeed. Ultimately, Edward Norton does manage to stop um, Brad Pitt, Tyler Durden, by shooting himself in the face well no he doesn't he stops one building from being destroyed uh he doesn't stop the other building no 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 no, well, no but no he, he stops he, oh he, he stops the existence yeah he of kills Tyler Durden, Durden by Sorry, shooting yeah, yeah, himself yeah, in the yeah, face yeah. which as it turns out I guess is some kind of shock to his system and kills Tyler but that, Pretty gross. but that doesn't really matter because the plan of Project Mayhem to destroy all these credit cards continues. All the buildings yep. are destroyed and we and the final scene we see with Edward Norton and Helena Bonham Carter stood there with their hands held watching the collapse of all the debt records as the Pixies plays out in the background. And then you see a giant cock. Yeah, so I suppose you should we should mention about Tyler one of Tyler Durden's jobs is yeah. to be an overnight cinema uh, what do you call those people? Projector. He's a, projectionist. Proje- he's a projectionist. Uh, and he cuts in. One of the most famous parts of the film is him cutting in pitch- big cocks and sex scenes into family movies, mm. which is not something I agreed with then and is not something I agreed with <laughs> now. But the shock value in an 18 rated film, yeah, go figure. I it it works. Were, I suppose if you were pissed off with society in general, really couldn't put your finger on what it was. I don't think um, hurting um, little spl- kids. Splicing spl- 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 a, spl- a frame of porn into into a family film maybe a way of expressing that I don't it's know. fine I just I just I have a bit of an issue with it being in family movies if he wants to do it in other <laughs> movies I just think 
Like, or maybe, or maybe that says something about me and how we should all yeah. just see big cocks yeah. all the time. It is quite funny, though, I must admit. So what I've realised just now is that Seven is a film about people who are working class. Mm. The Game is a film about people who are upper class. And Fight Club is about people who are middle class. With, with Ed Norton is middle class. He's middle management, middle yeah. of the road, middle class. So uh, this is the Man Class Trilogy. Mm. What a name. Yeah. Let me try he doesn't have a name in the film, does he? he? I think he's called... Jack, because he sometimes refer. I think because it's back. It's based on a. How do you say his name? Chuck pa- Palahniuk. Palahniuk. You don't know this. The the writer. He's quite a famous writer, but I do not know how to say his surname. But no. It's based on a novel um. by Chuck. And Chuck calls him, or he talks about himself. He does it in the film as well. well yeah, it, he says, Jack said this, Jack's crap life. Well, it's what's it, isn't it? He, 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 he finds these kind of uh, cards about. about uh, yeah. About, about somebody, an, 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 an imaginary character called Jack, and yeah. then you talk about Jack's colon, I am Jack's colon, yes. I am Jack's Sorry, stomach, yes. all this sort of stuff. So but I think, I think he's, he's called, I think people refer to him as Jack, but actually I'm guessing his name is Tyler Durden? I've no idea. Well, she's, he's certainly well, Tyler, yeah, that would well make he has sense, lots of different names, it? doesn't he? Anyway, so. yeah. I think we should get to the woman bit first, yeah. because there's so much more to talk about, because woman bit is small. Yeah. So let's talk about Helena Bonham Carter first. Like, the, the issue with this film is that she has no other women to talk to, so it's never going to pass the Bechdel test, and it is not designed for women. It, it is, if you're going to gender uh, quantify in this way, then yes, it's not for her. It's for a certain type of, I'm guessing, mostly straight white man. It's not particular. We haven't really talked about race here or any other discrimination but frank a lot of david fincher's films are white as well it gets a bit better as things go on but they're still mostly white because again he fixates on a story and it's about a white man you know it's he's always it's always telling his own story about himself like most directors are um uh but marla singer is a phenomenal character she is the first time she has got a lot of... Um... Well, she, she is sort of the, the anti-Tyler Durden, as far as Edward Norton's concerned, I, I think. And the uh, female Jack, there's, female there's, Ed Norton. Yeah, there's definitely a point in the film where I think Edward Norton has a choice to make between either going with Tyler or going with Marla, and he chooses Tyler. And, and, and you do yeah, he chooses himself rather than giving his heart to someone. It's kind of classic well, male. You, you might argue he's, whether he's choosing the female or he's choosing the male, because he doesn't know that Tyler is. Oh. And, and, and I just wonder whether or not... We'd all know, choose Brad Pitt. Well, Helena Bonham Carter looks amazing, but we'd all choose Brad Pitt. I think Pitt. you're invited to think, well, what would have happened had he chosen Marla? Who knows? But Well, well he does choose her in the end. He doesn't... Well, he, he, yes. He's got a moderately happy ending. To, to the extent that he's yeah. killed Tyler at that point. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, good point. But he had, but he decided to kill Tyler. Mm. Um, she is. See again, you've moved away. It's quite easy in this film to move away to Ed Norton's character. Let's bring it back to Helena Bonham Carter. <laughs> so she's she's fascinating. She's got this look, which you could copy with a kind of night dressy. Um, fringe black fringe jacket, ridiculous hair, which is probably Helena Bonham Carter's actual hair, and these kind of Mary Jane shoes, clumpy shoes, and constantly smoking. She's very slim for her. She gets her body out a couple of times, but again, I didn't really have a problem with it. Was it necessary? I think it's okay because you see a lot of like naked Tyler Durden or at least topless mm. and I think the scenes where you do see her they're kind of stylized as well aren't they because they're kind of like a dream thing when Ed Norton doesn't realise that it's actually Tyler Durden who's having 
It's him that's having sex with her, but he's imagining Tyler Durden, except for it's not an imagining. It's actually him embodying the character doing it. Yes. It's all very surreal. Um, she's got, I think, quite a good accent for an English, cut glass English actress. <laughs> uh, yeah. Whether I'm the best judge or not, I don't know. Um, she's she's a character with a personality of her own, within reason. We know that she does things like go to these support groups and pretends to <laughs> be with testicular... Men who've lost their testicles to testicular cancer doesn't make yeah. any sense, and all this. She's got a wry sense of humour. She's not very well off when she lives in this apartment. She's always on the breadline. She's but she's um, a grifter. She's always trying to like you know sell clothes out of the drying <laughs> machine at the Goodwill. It's amazing. Um, and she also has worries. She obviously has some kind of um, mental health issue as well in terms of she thinks she might be dying she wants company she's willing to put up with him when one minute he shags her and the next minute he's telling her to fuck off and he's frankly awful to her which you know he's got a dissociative disorder but still nonetheless so you said her hanging around Mm. but that's I think you as a viewer being influenced by the idea that it's Tyler well, yeah, I'm being a bit unkind him. there. But, that, but that's the message um, that the Project Mayhem are giving to her. I think that's fair to say. But actually, um, she puts up with an awful lot. Well, the insinuation in, in her being there is is that, I mean, Brad Pitt, Tyler Durden, is, is kind of forever saying, we've got to get rid of her, we've got to get rid of her. Yes. And yet the reason she comes to the house is is to sort of see him you know, so, so to speak. Mm. So it, it's, it's a it's a sort of dichotomy between him saying we've got to get rid of her, we're getting rid of her, but but then she turns up and has sex with him anyway, because <laughs> which I, he's complicit in. So. Because if this is about men having feelings, which mm. I think is one of the narratives of Fight Club, uh, and whether and where and how ha- and when and where is it appropriate yeah. for men to display their feelings, the moment that a man is vulnerable with a woman, he then closes up. And can't commit or, or say how he really feels. Mm. And also there's this idea that he has to be the power Tyler Durden lover. And that the only way he could ever please a woman is to be the, the best lover ever. Which he could be and is mm. good. But I also felt like that was a statement about men having to be perfect. Well, I also think, it's, as I was saying before, I also think it is, it is a choice um, uh, that, that Ed Norton is being asked mm. to make. Which is go, go with Miles Singer if you like. Um, if you in, want to have a happy as in, as, in, as in it might be better yeah. actually um, and, I, and I think that the ultimate that, that that's kind of the point is that, that that she represents the sort of the better way so to yeah. speak ultimately yeah. she is still the avatar of that but I think there has been a conscious movement by Fincher at this point to round her out yeah. as a character yeah. she doesn't have her entire life but again that's because he has a perspective doesn't he? Fincher movies always have a perspective and it is Ed Norton's perspective. So he's not going to see... We're not going to see Singer doing something... We, we could, to be fair, we could. Fincher doesn't really do that, does he? He puts you in the position of your protagonist and you know what your protagonist knows, which you have to do when the conceit of your movie yeah, is I that he in, doesn't realise he's yeah, got split I, I think in the case of Fight Club, you yeah. almost have to have... You, <laughs> mu- you must pretty much have everything from Ed Norton's point of view. Yeah, otherwise... It, yeah, well, I suppose you could have that. I don't I think... Fincher doesn't want the audience to know more than he knows. No, but he's the, got he's got an arrogance. Yeah, there. but you, I don't think I, I, could, I could be wrong, but I doubt whether there's in a single scene where Brad Pitt is on his own, where Ed Norton's not in the room with him. I, 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 I be, think I think there might be just a couple, but it's not it's it's cut in a way. Yeah. When you watch it again, like um, you and I did, um, 
I was looking for that. Yeah. And there are a couple of things, but it's so well edited that technically Ed Norton could be in the room, yeah. but he isn't always. And it's absolute genius in terms of its editing. I think it, it, it might have won Oscars for editing. It was certainly nominated for various things. Um, but there's not much else to say about Helena Bonham Carter, except she's absolutely wonderful in it, and maybe Bechdel test passing isn't the be-all and end-all here for a female mm. character. And I also think that she, the Fincher is starting to think of this idea about female protagonist I think is percolating as early as 1999 mm. and he's toying with it which we'll see when we get to the next movie um, but now I think we should talk about the, the yeah the, the two main for me narratives of Fight Club one male emotion and how a man is supposed to behave and two anti-capitalism and what are we doing to our planet and what is society moulding us into? They're sort of interrelated. It's about culture mm-hmm. and society. Um, I think the second one is easier to talk about, but the first one for me is the most fascinating because I think that's where the hitting one another is. It, it comes into the fore. It's about men who don't know how to explore their emotions, which could include rage. Yeah. And uh, well, or rage at, at an unknown governmental force. Also, um, like the pure pleasure of pain or what have you, of inflicting something. I think, I mean, I would probably... This is where I should really let you well, speak, because I mean, actually I, I can't I'll comment. probably simplify it to say <laughs> what it's... I mean, for me, what, yeah. what it's about, anyway, is, 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 is the way that Fincher, at least, thinks that modern society sort of disenfranchises or emasculates men yes and 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 hence you know this idea that if you go back through the ages men were involved in you know fighting wars and and just fighting in in general that that's been suppressed in modern society and that fight club represents a way for them that you know to still feel that so inflicting pain is just a way to feel alive if you like something of that nature so it's kind of what i was saying but it's a little bit more but i'm saying emotional and i think that that's probably a bit reductive you're 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 almost saying that you think that, as a man, they need to be able to... Is it like a hunter-gatherer? Well, kind sort of, of, sort You're saying of. it's a biological... Well, at least that, that's the way he's sort of interpreting it yeah. anyway, which is to say that if, at a very basic level, he's saying if mm. you put a bunch of men in an office and, mm. and, and have them type computers and write reports, then he, that, that they are You're not, eroding their that, masculinity. Yeah, they are, they are not doing what they are supposed to do, and hence... They need some form of expression Excuse and that expression. Excuse me, why I vomit over here? Yeah, well, you know. Yeah. Um, so, and to I be think, fair, this is a book idea. again. So again, Fincher's movie, but based on an existing book, which mm. is making that point. So, to what extent he disagrees or agrees with it, he's making a fair film based on the subject. Yeah, I think material. so. Material. It is. It is. I mean, it, it's. It's. I won't say it's a unique idea. It's not. But. But it's. But it's. It, it's probably it was probably I, I unique think, for the time. I don't think I've ever seen a film where that concept yeah. runs quite so much through the core of it as, yeah. far, as Fight Club. So you said, and obviously right about the time that this film was out, you were at college in America. I was, yeah. And you've told me, I believe, that you've seen this film more than any other David Fincher film. Yeah, I would have said so. Yeah. So what was the atmosphere like? You were there, man. <laughs> I was what there, was the atmosphere man. like? 
I'm guessing for men across young well, men was across at, college well, campuses. I was, at, I was at film school at the time, yeah. and um, there was sort of two two schools of th- well, I had two sort of two sets of friends. If you like, I had my film school friends, yeah. and I had sort of other friends. And I, what I noted is that uh, film schooling people, particularly the critic, the critics side of it, were yeah. a little bit more sort of sn- uh, sort of snobby about it. As in, not um, saying it's quite as yeah, the, the, good the, the, as yeah, everyone, was, everyone was, it was. Oh, it's this, it's that. Yeah. The, 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 the statement is a bit overt, and all this kind of stuff. Whereas the people that the every you know the people that weren't film you know students that were basically just just people going along to a cinema and just just watching the film it it clearly resonated with them it was a zeitgeist for them in a way that it never was for the film critic people because they they were just and i think you see this in the film criticisms at the time are not particularly complimentary about it or at least not completely hang Um, on let's let's talk about how you just tyler durdened yourself in uh that which which school are you in um you were you said you were at film school and then you went but the film school people did this and that every man did that. I was more. Oh, I was giving you my I was more. I was more in the every man category. I, you I loved thought, it. Hence um, why you've seen I, it that I, many yeah, times. Yeah, I mean, I think it became slightly fashionable to criticise it at the time, right? and, and I always thought that that would be a mistake. I always thought it was one of those films that you'll regret doing that in in ten years' time because oh. it, it clearly is going to have more of a an impact than than you're prepared to admit right now, or, or even know about right well, now. Well, there's also a school of thought that mm. if something provokes that much criticism, mm. there's something about it. Yeah. It's exactly how I feel about, I can't believe I'm bringing this up again, but I suppose it's pertinent, Joker. Mm. You know, film that really made me feel deeply uncomfortable, but I completely understand that that criticism makes you feel something, which is what cinema is about. So I do understand. It feels yeah. like it was a bit like that. Well, I think, I think, I think some films, and they're, they're not, they're not, I think they're few and far between in, in general, but some films just strike a bit of a chord at a particular time and mm-hmm. I don't think it's always obvious what those films are going to be mm-hmm. but when I think when you see one you, you, you can often know it and I'm often surprised and, and, and oftentimes these films get not critically savage that's that's too much but they're not critically as well received as they might have been yeah. but they're but I always think that the critics regret writing harshly about them down the line, five years later, ten years later, because to me it's fairly obvious that this film is going to become something of a, of a, cult, of a cultural icon, which is exactly what happened with Fight Club, really. Well, it certainly is. Like, it kind of... It, it, it was quite awe-inspiring when I watched it to think about not only were the things like the first rule of Fight Club, as you don't yeah, know, very which quotable. people use every single day. It is probably <laughs> the most quotable film quote ever. In yeah, my it is opinion. very quotable that line. Um, because because you just apply it to anything where you might have a rule, and humanity thrives on rules or lack thereof. Um, uh, and then also things about soap, uh, thing things about uh, who is Tyler Durden. There is a lot of quotes i did enjoy there was a really good quote that um marla singer says which i laughed out loud at which was where um it was about her and ed norton both going to the testicular cancer lost their balls yeah and she says something along the lines of you're the only person there who has balls and i thought yeah (laughs) she she goes i understand what it's like not to have balls (laughs) and i was like oh i like that joke well done um so yeah um Okay, yeah, so you, what do you think about the expressing of emotion, not just about men need to do this because they used to be in battles, mm. but also men no longer know where's appropriate to put their feelings? 
Mm. Like, like Ed Norton clearly wants to smack his boss. Yeah. Instead, he smacks himself. Or, you know, it looks like Tyler... Well, he does smack himself at one point and then blames it on his boss. Which, again, is very hilarious because that is a key to the actual plot of the film. Again, Fincher showing you what's happening and then telling you that's what you just saw. Um, but I do think there's a lot within that film. Which we talk about the homoeroticism. <laughs> that film is so gay. It's so gay. You have the most beautiful Brad Pitt body that's constantly on display. It's in the poster, isn't it? Or some of the screenshots from the film um, is of that short do hair do I, do I think that's posing. True. I think you could read it that way, I suppose. You uh, didn't see it like n- that. Well, no, so it speaks if, to your if, heterosexual masculinity. If only, yeah, if only because... They, it's, I think if they were wrestling, for example, that'd be one thing. But when you actually see punching and teeth getting knocked out... There's nothing particularly homoerotic about that to me. You see, I don't think... I, I disagree. I think it's it's because they know that wrestling would be seen in a certain mm. way. Let's say straight, or men who are identifying as straight, are being able to... Let's say it's like any other sport. Sport always has men touching each other and cuddling each other and doing things that they could never do apparently in a social situation. And so I think that the teeth flying out and the blood and the disgustingness is there to throw you off the idea that it's actually men trying to connect with one another. Mm. You should go with this because I'm giving you, like, I'm giving (laughs) men an out here on what is actually just them being total fucking idiots. I, I Honestly, well, I suspect, female fight club feels not like something I'd want to take Well, yeah, but I suspect that the, the men being total fucking idiots mm. probably is actually more more in line with what, 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 what I think the actual sort of point really is. But it's, has society made them like that? But it's, it, That is suggesting that men are of the most base level. Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure that is the case. Uh, this also just reminded me about Jared Leto being in this film as well. And I love how Fincher is taking these two beautiful men and pummeling them, him and Brad Pitt. Mm. Um, well, Brad Pitt never really looks bad. No, but he is fighting... And Jared, Jared Leto, yeah, he gets stuff. the shit kicked down. Yes, and looks hideous. He's actually disfigured to the elephant man. If that's not a metaphor I, I don't know what it is let's take this model sexy guy and destroy him on camera um uh and um there's also like when it gets into project mayhem as well it's very strange in terms of it becomes more military yeah and that's nothing so you've had to move that goes to your point which is they were punching each other because they didn't have battle lines drawn and now they're drawing them for themselves although they have a good enemy which is capitalism yeah, um, I think capitalism stroke um, a, a yeah. You're right. It is. I mean, it, it's a sort of this. It's the mundane existence, but capitalism that, that, that capitalism feeds in a yeah, way. Yeah, the whole here's your yeah. IKEA flat. Exactly. Stuff. So so yeah. It, yeah so that there, there is absolutely there are there are sort of if we're going to fight anybody if there is an enemy out there it is capitalism and so we need to destroy it. So. All those big companies that are mm. selling us things that we don't want, we're going to have to just destroy them. Because... But they don't get women involved. Do you see what I mean? Capitalism is, is everybody's enemy, yeah. but it's almost as if they needed a project. So you, you have to kind of ask, how sincere were they, or did they just want an enemy? They were lucky. They picked a good enemy, in my opinion, although I'm not entirely sure what wiping out all debt would do. Everything would be great for, like, a... a 
bit of time and then loads of people were getting debt again because you're not going to change by wiping out uh, their debt you're not going to change not people fundamentally wanting sure it would have worked even, yeah. back, even back then it's because, a flawed um, idea well actually I, I don't even know whether destroying certainly destroying a building right now wouldn't do anything it wouldn't wipe out any debt record um, uh, well there were computers then but we're talking 21 years ago so I'm saying yeah, it's maybe. not quite as dependent maybe it but, is, but, but it feels like a, a quite a simplistic plan but anyway that's well, yeah, if you, oh, um, destroy four buildings and there's no debt in America. Yeah, um, yeah. If you it was that, that easy. It really, yeah. <laughs> yeah somebody would have done that already. Yeah. Um, but maybe that's the point. Maybe we're supposed to be laughing at him that it's so futile. Well, also... But at the time, I didn't think that. Well, really, the point of... I mean, Tyler Durden is basically the, the personification of that guy who will who is just quite driven and will do it. He will go that step to do it. I mean, Who is the best possible yeah, version yeah, as I mean, well. Edward Norton would never do yeah. it, normally speaking, yeah. as as nobody else would who's in Project mm. Mayhem, ultimately. Yeah. It, it takes Tyler Durden as that guy who will always take the step yeah. to do it. Even I think he comments as much in the film where he says, I'll drag you kicking and screaming. Yes, it has to be me. But yeah. also, like, look at his ridiculously camp wardrobe. I love it. It's brilliant, all his colours. The only colour that David Fincher has in his films is <laughs> in red. The only red and oranges <laughs> are Tyler Durden's wardrobe. Um, shall we do check-in, puzzle-solving? Check-in, puzzle-solving, yes. Mm. Uh, the protagonist doesn't know he has a split personality. Yeah, it, it, it's not a dissimilar... Well, it is a dissimilar, but but, but it, it feels like that same kind of twist or that sort of shock to the system that, that you get from Seven in some respects. It, it's that kind of like, wow, I didn't see that. I have to be honest with you, I did not see that coming the first time I saw Fight Club. Um, that he was Tyler Durden. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and again, testament to the editing that it is possible. You know, some films literally, it's wrong. Mm. You know, you're t- like you said, it, if it was Tyler Durden just on his own entirely in a thing. Um, I think there's a little things where you think it could that, that it's a bit far stretched, you know, because him walking out of a room and her walking in. I think I think with the benefit of hindsight, I can watch all that and say yes, it's obvious now. But I don't recall thinking it the first time I saw it. No, no, no. I mean in terms of the conning the audience, Fincher does con the audience. Yeah. He's on the line. So, some some things it's perfect, like a Nolan film where you know every single thing actually could happen. Um, and also, like, for example, Shyamalan, The Sixth Sense, when you yeah. actually go back and you watch that and you realise, although, can I just show off? I worked out the issue with The Sixth Sense halfway through the film. Because you? you have these stupid flipping dinners with Olivia Williams' character and they're not even touching and they're so far apart. That's why I worked out. I didn't work it out from anything else. Didn't know about the red <laughs> balloons and everything red. But I was like, uh... he's not there. Or, or she's not there. Like, someone's not there. So I worked it out for the end. Oh, I'm so great. You anyway, are a genius. Thank you. Just on the sixth sense, there are many other things I did not know and I like to be surprised. Um, and uh, darkness, a colour cinematography check-in. Um... Yeah, this film is very dark. Also <laughs> set mostly at night. Yeah, yeah. I guess it is really. I he loves really... the night shoot, does Fincher? Uh, there probably are day scenes, but I, I don't know. You, you don't come away with it thinking that. I Can suppose. you think of any of them? Maybe mm. some in the apart um, in the big building, but then you wouldn't know anyway. The basements, basements for all the fight clubs. Basements for the fight clubs. His office. You could say his office is in the day, but you only really see like cubicles and stuff. Um, her flat. The, the meetings, they're all at night, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's mostly darkness. Yeah. But again, this neon light of the city. Um, yeah, and we're starting to get into the greens and the blues again, I feel like, is the palette. 
of this film. You have the icy cave where he's beautiful nothing. What, what, what does he call it? His special place where the penguin is? Oh, it's just a power animal, isn't it? Power, yeah. And isn't it called his, like safe place or something like that? That's something that people or, use in, yeah. in conversation. Uh, I don't think that was the Generally. first. Maybe, but I think it definitely brought it because that's like a yeah. that's a meditation philosophical concept. I think going to your sort of happy place or whatever yeah. it was always always already a thing. Really? Wasn't it? Yeah. Okay, I think maybe for me it was brought to my mm. attention yeah. about your happy place, and then I think there were a million million parodies after that. Um, so where is this then so far? Um, probably his best. Okay, you um, think it's the best he's made? I think I think not just it, it's. I'm not just saying it because of. I, yeah. I, I think it's it's a, it's a film more than anything else. It's just so full of ideas and concepts yes. that, I, that you don't often see that many kind of original no. sort of complications around. I also think the cinematography and, and the editing together. Yeah. Um, he does this thing where he splices, you know, as Tyler Durden does in the in the film narrative. Fincher splices little pieces throughout the film, which if you look for, you can see like little flashes of Tyler Durden yeah, here and there. And and as I mentioned right at the very start of this conversation, a, a giant penis appears right at yeah. the very end. It's things like that. Not a gay film at all. So the whole the whole thing is quite sort of postmodern and self-reflexive. Yeah. I think it's just a very smart, wise film. I can't quite get on board because I think the point of Fight Club is it's speaking to you. It's yeah, I, I, absolutely. Me. Definitely a male but, target uh, audience, isn't it? But that doesn't mean I can't enjoy it and think it's amazing and also take the ideas for myself. One of the things I would say when reviewing someone like Fincher's catalogue is that um, as a woman... I want to see more women in, on screen. I want to see more realistic, you know, realistic in speech marks, depictions of female characters as in doing something that a woman can mm. or can't do. But I'm also happy to project myself into a male protagonist because a protagonist's journey mm. or experience should be universal. Yeah. yeah. This, I don't know. Some of it, yes. Some of it, I don't quite understand. I will never understand the brutality of a fight club. I don't need that. Okay, and and that's mean, fine. Like, I, 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 I'm, look, I'm I'll happy be, it exists. I'll be honest with you. I, yeah. I, I don't really either. If you, if you yeah. say to me, Nick, you can join this fight club and you'll feel alive, I, yeah. I'd, I'd be like, but I might get hurt. <laughs> yeah. Definitely, because you have to fight yeah. on the first night of fight club. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you have to fight. So, yeah. Um, so... A, a, a classic case for me of a work of brilliance, but not quite speaking my language. Okay, fair enough. I've read about these. They're quite in vogue in high-end construction right now. One really can't be too careful about home invasion. This is perfect. The alarm goes off in the middle of the night. What are you going to do? Call the police and wait till Tuesday? Treeps downstairs in your underthings to check it out? I think not. This whole thing makes me nervous. Why? Ever read any Poe? No, but I loved her last album. We venture into the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And in 2002, David Fincher makes... Panic Room. And feminists around the world can breathe easy <laughs> because we have finally found a film that very much passes the Bechdel test. Yeah. Um, would you like to summarise Panic Room? Okay, I'll try. Um... Uh, so, uh, Christian Stewart and Jodie Foster play mother and daughter. Or daughter and mother. Or daughter and mother. <laughs> um, they are incredibly wealthy, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point in this. 
Um, but uh, so he's back again. So yeah. he's got. He's got no. He's, so he's gone up to. Yeah, he's gone to wealth he's again. Back to, he? He's back to high um, class. He. Um, she has. Um, well, her husband has. Well, her husband has, has left her, I believe, for another for another woman, and she is looking for a house, uh, a, an apartment. Some not a house. It is a house. It a is a brownstone, house. the yeah. biggest flipping house yeah. you ever saw um, in Manhattan. I yeah. believe it is. Um, and they, they find one. She's called Meg and her daughter is called Sarah. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Um, and they find one, um, an incredibly uh, expensive looking uh, property with about four, five, four, four, five, five, five yeah, a lot of floors. It's got its own lift. Yeah, it got a lift in it. That, that's, yeah. you know, I, I, I pray for a day when my flat has a, like, <laughs> um, but it also has in it um, a panic room, a secret room. Um, which Meg notices and she's the only person that notices she's so good it's a Mary Sue thing but I also liked it I was like well done Jodie Foster you noticed this room's not the right size she's got excellent sense of trigonomic relationships (laughs) really nailed it Um, a panic room which is a a secret room which you can go into if you feel your your house is being invaded and it will Mm. lock completely and within there you're you're completely isolated and you've got cameras and you can call the police and you should have food and blah 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 and all these sorts of things uh, she's not too sure about that, but you yeah, know, that actually scares her. Yeah, but then also makes her worried that she is a rich person and people might yeah. Um, and, and if that's all you've got to worry, about, if fair... that's all you've got to worry about, a panic room in this property that size, I'd say yeah, you can live I with it. I suppose so, but also you do have to worry about it. Yeah, mm. um, I'm sure she could have locked it if she would really wanted. Um, <laughs> So they decide to move into the property and on one of the, I think, is it the first, not the first it, night? It, it, I think it is all the second night. Yeah. And I think the reason why, when I started watching the film, I was like, why is this happening immediately? And then I realised yeah, there's there actually a plot there point, is a which point. is that it has to happen on yeah. that first night because it's been set up yeah. to happen that night because no yeah. one's supposed Indeed. to be there. So she hasn't entirely activated the panic room or all the little electronics, but she's activated it enough to whereby it kind of works to, to a point. I believe. Yeah, she set a code. Did yeah, she, she, code she has code? set a code. But for she doesn't put any food or stuff in it. She hasn't even used it. Yeah. Yeah. She was setting it up or something, yeah. and then she had too much wine so, in the bar. Indeed, they sit around drinking wine, and, and on the whatever, and whatever it is, first or second night, yes. her um, Jodie Foster and, and Kristen Stewart are busy just sleeping away, yes. and three men, <laughs> three men break into the property. Who are Forrest Whitaker? Jared Leto, an unnamed man who called wears a Raul, mask. Raul. Who's called Raul, yeah. who I have to say is one of my... He's, is he the top? He's in my top mm. two or three most hated David Fincher yeah. characters. He is awful. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, so they break into the property. He's not even part of it. No, <laughs> not expecting anybody to be there because they think the property's empty. Because Forrest Whitaker is an engineer who makes panic indeed. rooms and security Indeed, indeed as you find this out as it goes along. Yeah. Um, so, 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 they're, so they're not expecting anyone to be there and there is a purpose for them being there. Jodie Foster and Christian Stewart um, don't see them. You can say Megan Sarah. Megan Sarah. We'll call them Megan Sarah. It's easier. <laughs> They they see them um, and and they panic. So where do you think they go when they panic? Well, Meg Meg sees them and then gets Sarah out of sleep and yeah. they go to the panic room. They go to the panic room and they lock, and they lock the door. As it transpires, the three men that broke in are searching for something that the previous owner of the property um, had. Uh, I don't know if you know what it is. I, I, you don't. You don't really. But it, they start talking about values, and you know it's bearer bonds, it's, isn't it? In the end, that's what it ends up yeah, being. Yeah. But um, basically, you know it's worth an awful lot of yeah, money. Lot, and in fact, I think Jared later has lied 
to the other two yeah. because it's worth even more money than he said it was yeah, going which to is be. A, yeah. Millions. Um, and as it also and guess so, what? And, and as it also <laughs> so happens, those that thing that they want just happens to be in the panic room as well. Yeah. Which as a first time watcher, this was exciting for yeah. me because I'm like, what is it? Where is it? What why aren't they looking for it? So that so there thereafter develops a sort of uh, a standoff between yeah. uh, the three men and uh, Meg and Sarah mm-hmm. and they just want what's in the panic room. Um, and of course Meg and Sarah quite rightly are just want to, come to out. live. So so because as as we've said Forrest Whitaker happens to be a guy who designs panic rooms, or at least has a lot to do with them. Yeah. He tries various kind of tactics to sort of get you know get in there by gassing them and all kinds of other little things. We should go, we'll go with that because yeah. I think talking about the technical side of this film, I think this is the first film where Fincher starts using different forms of technology. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. talk about it yeah. in a bit. You carry on. Yeah, um, uh, and is it probably worth noting as well that the, these these three invaders? Aren't exactly getting getting pals. along. <laughs> um, you've got you've got Forrest Whitaker, who's most sort of down to earth kind of guy, who's basically an engineer, and that's why he's there. Then he's got, just poor, and, and he just got, wants some money. And then you've got Jared Leto, who's, who's your career criminal, who, yeah. you, with dreads, white yeah. man with dreads. Yeah. you know. And oh, sorry, got, with um, uh, what are they called? Sorry, um, cornrows. Yeah, Rock, white man with cornrows. You know it's bad. Who who's plays Raoul? I don't know who he is. Okay, but Raoul Character is actor. Raoul is is a very is a very good kind of it's best actor. Um, just nasty piece of work. Plays everything very very low key. Oh, it's Dwight Yoakam. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Very calm. Very calm. But clearly a little bit psychotic at the same time. Very calm until he's not. Yeah. Um, uh, and so so there's lots of arguments between them and and so on and so forth. Um. It, 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 the, the, there's various scenes here where where Jodie Foster sort of comes out of the panic room where she thinks they're not there and then goes back in and so on and so forth um, and, and and lots of trickery where they try and trick her out and, and, and all this sort of stuff mm-hmm. um, eventually uh, she does manage to put in a call to her ex-husband uh, I think he's his ex uh, and, and, yeah. and, and he does he does actually turn up, but then he, but then he effectively plays the role of hostage for the for the three men to who basically torture him to try and get Jodie Foster to come. Yeah. Out. Um, Raoul at some point gets a bit crazy at this point, and doesn't he kill Jared later? I think he does, doesn't he? Yeah. He, yeah. I think we're going too much into the actual machinations. Yeah, we are a little bit. Plot now. We are a little bit. Yeah. Um, Push comes to shove is a final standoff between Forrest Whitaker. Is that right? Yeah, because. Yeah, because Raoul kills well, Jared Leto. Well, it ends up inverting. It ends up inverting where, where Forrest Whitaker and, and Raoul wind up in the panic room. Yes. And Jodie Foster winds up being outside. Yes, because but, we've but missed she's got, a, But she's got guns and weapons. We've missed an important bit, yeah. which is that Sarah is diabetic. Yeah, which is quite a critical thing because yeah. because obviously she... Her sugar is, levels must always... Um, but Forrest Whitaker being the nice guy, he is, does administer uh, an insulin shot to her. So good for him. Yeah, and there's some um, good shots on that needle where you're like, uh-uh, and that needle's coming in. Um, I think, uh, and in the final analysis, the police do eventually turn up because of a very clever policeman. Very where clever. Where Jodie Foster is trying desperately hard not to do anything, and he's going blink at me. Yeah. If yeah. you're in trouble, it is a good scene, that. She, and yeah, and she just doesn't blink. It and is it's almost good, like she tries to. It is to a really hard. good scene that. <laughs> 
You know, ma'am, if there was a problem, you could just blink at me and I would know there was a problem. But I love the fact, like, in my head, I've invented a scene where he walks off with his fellow, is it a woman? I don't know, there's another police officer. And he walks off and he's like, there's something dodgy going on there. Let's hang around for a bit. And that kind of made me feel quite positive about the police in a world where we don't. In, in the file analysis, um, yes. the police do turn up, and by that point, uh, there's only two of these guys left. Um, oh, and Raoul hurts Ra- his fingers. Raoul gets his, gets his arm, his fingers cut off oh, by the horrible. door of the panic room, yes. um, thus illustrating the point that they are dangerous after all. Yes. And Forrest Whisker <laughs> gets caught by the police. Um, um, and all of which... When actually he was helping them get away, he could have... I think that was the thing. He had Mm. a moral... He he decided to have change of heart for his Whitaker. And the better thing probably would have been to have taken the bear bonds and killed everybody. Mm. And he would have gotten away with it. But he decided to keep them alive and just wanted to run away with the money. And that... Because he turns back, doesn't he? If he'd have just gone without turning back... Well, what does he turn back Roll, It's Roll, isn't it? He doesn't even... Oh, he knows Roll. Yes, he he thinks Roll's going to kill them. In fact, when Jodie Foster was perfectly... Yeah, Yeah, but Jodie Foster was actually had it quite more under control than he realised because she was working him. Although he was about to kill her, he was wasn't he? He was about to kill her, which yeah. is why I thought Yeah. Um, but he comes back, has changed apart, tries to protect them, and his morality leads to his own yeah. capture. And then the his very last for. scene is, which might be one of your Nick tack-ons, is where they are, um, Meg and Sarah are looking for another smaller apartment by which they mean only four stories as opposed to five <laughs> and no panic room yeah um i really enjoyed this i understand what the fuss was about i never wanted to see it at the time and i really enjoyed this um not only because of the girls being on screen although that was kind of i felt like that was like um I could kind of relax a bit more. I could sigh a bit more because I just had the idea that in this film, at least, Fincher wasn't going to make Meg and Sarah start punching each other. Mm. I had a feeling that there was a familial love and it would be them trying to hide from someone and not them trying to deal with their existential crises. Um, And it was just a kind of thriller. If anything, you could say this was the most straightforward and run-of-the-mill of the David Fincher catalogue in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and probably one of the most financially successful. I've started to look at some budgets. We'll talk about it later. Yeah. Um, uh, I love the characterisation. I completely believe that uh, Kristen Stewart could be Jodie Foster's daughter. I think that's excellent casting. Um, I didn't know it was her when it first came out because I don't think Twilight or anything come out because she was a child. I don't really know her as an actress. Um, I think what this film does, which is what I wanted to talk about in terms of technology um was what fincher does is he makes jodie foster incredibly talented do you know about this concept of the mary sue we've talked about it on other episodes do you want me to refresh your memory so basically it's when a screenwriter is kind of projecting a, a perfect themselves to some extent into a perfect female character who does everything perfectly yeah so looks great kicks ass is the brainiest exception they're called a Mary Sue and there are competing schools of thought as to how bad that is I would personally rather have Mary Sue's around than not have female characters but at the same time women don't have to be perfect when they're on screen because men certainly aren't so this is on a borderline Mary Sue because I do think that Jodie Foster's character is incredibly talented and clever but also 
I really enjoyed the narrative, which is that they're just constantly thinking, what can we do? What can we do? How can we get out of here? They get that pipe that they try and shine a torch through to get the neighbour to work out what's going on. Um, and then there's there's two things that Foster's character do, which I would never do in a million years, which just so, show how smart she is. So the one that you and I have already discussed um off mic is the whole do you want to talk about that um what we the, the about? earthing of the plug so she could get the phone to work she does something where the phone is broken in the panic room which is the phone so she can call the police it's broken and then what she does is she takes the wire out of it and then i think she grabs the phone line from the be- the wire from the phone line in the bedroom that she gets through a vent and then she strips the two um, what they called the three Earth, yeah, well, and then she binds them together. Well, I think they only have two in America. Oh, okay, fine, two, and then she binds them together, and then effectively she's created her own telephone line. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I wouldn't know how to do that. No, that's, that seems like the. I'd like, try. I'd try, but I, I, yeah. I, I would be saying to you the whole time, this there's like a ninety nine point nine percent chance this won't work, but I'll just you know, <laughs> for the sake of it. Um. So that was really good because I think most people wouldn't be able to do that irrespective of gender. So good for her for being smart and I like the fact that that's a female character doing that. And the other thing she does is the whole thing where they start pumping um, uh, gas into the air vents yeah. which they then set on fire is that then that, that yeah, yeah. That, that Raoul psychopath Raoul sets, sets which makes sense I mean that, that is something you could obviously you do risk yes. incinerating yourself but, but she uh... does that thing where she opens the vents and then she creates doesn't she what does she do she creates no she creates the fire she sparks something yeah. in order because he's gas they're gassing them to gas them to mm-hmm. make them fall asleep or what have you how would they get into the or just hoping they'll open the door before they sit yeah, it's, the it's, gas it's, and it's die. It's a slightly risky strategy, yeah. isn't it? But then that, that's played out in the plot because Forrest Whitaker even says... says uh, what are you doing? Don't, don't open it all the way. Don't do, yeah, and he just Because he, he even says, if yeah. you do that, then you know, you kill them and get in there. In fact, it, yeah. But then she gets a lighter and lights it, which ignites all of the gas, mm. covers them, and then it goes out and blasts them, which is an incredibly bold move because she could have burned her and her daughter alive um again things that i don't think you'd you'd show female characters ordinarily doing it's a pretty risky move you'd have to say wouldn't you it is it is but it worked and and it's not it's not within the realm of impossibility no absolutely not but i wonder whether or not but in that at that point in the proceedings whether i just would have opened the door but you know who knows god i probably would have opened the door and they just banged on it and then be dead in five seconds you know what I'd have done I I, I, I just on this subject I'd, I'd right. have actually said what is it that you want I'll get I know they just I'll, I'll get it for you you go downstairs and then I'll dump it outside the panic room go back in yeah you take it and then fuck off but haven't they got the idea that they think they have to kill them anyway well Raul certainly does I don't yeah know and I think Gerald later was thinking mm. about as well once they knew because they said all because there's a whole thing about when they realise they're in the but house then, but then they could, could decide not to but then to. I suppose you could just wait till daylight couldn't you I suppose at that point I do feel like everyone got a bit stressed out and tense and they could have just mm. got their stupid bear bonds yeah. and she would still be okay and the husband wouldn't be had to death. A question I want to bring out a negative about this film is that why is Jodie Foster married to a man who's like 30 years older than her, which he is in real life. I looked it up. And then he leaves her for someone even younger. I'm like, there's money, a narrative. Money and power. Well, that's what they're suggesting. Strong effort is you. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good, that's a good um, way into this. So, uh, 
feminist critique of this film, and I don't mean necessarily negative critique, is that this is about what happens when women are disenfranchised and empowered and they can only get their money by virtue of being married to someone who has it. Although, to what extent Jodie Foster is really suffering? She obviously, she plays it very well because she is an Oscar-winning actress. She seems genuinely distraught that her old manky husband has left her for someone younger. But she, her life is actually fine. Apart from that, yeah. If she, I mean, she's a flipping multi-millionaire with a daughter who she seems to have a really good relationship. Yeah, with. but she, she doesn't seem to work. Yeah, she can chill and just find a new guy. It's not going to be a problem. Uh, yeah, maybe that's us being desensitised to divorce and relationships. But um, well, I think the point is, it's quite fresh, isn't it? It's supposed to have happened relatively recently. I think, isn't that the? Yeah. Although she's been looking at lots of places, that's what they have. That's another female character uh, who's in the film who's just annoying for five minutes, but I like it because I remember her. Who is the? <laughs> we think she's a real estate operative, or yeah, she's an, I don't know. what you might call an estate, high end estate agent in the UK. She's yeah, she's um, that's probably not selling the, sunset. That's probably not doing her justice calling her an estate agent. No, exactly. Um, that's what I'm saying. So she's like a she's a realtor. Real, realtor yeah. Mm. Um, but she has a whole personality. Like, Finch has given her a personality within one scene, basically, mm. which I like. Um, what did you think of this film? Not a big fan of it. Had you, You'd seen it before? Yeah, I'd seen it before, yeah. yeah. Um, and didn't grow up I think I've seen you. it twice before, actually. Yeah. Um, Why have you seen it twice before? I don't know. It's, one, <laughs> it's a, an easy watch. If a film's on, yeah, it is an yeah. easy watch, that's true. And, and <laughs> if it's sort of film where it's on TV and, yeah. I, and I just happen to catch it, I probably would just sit there and watch it. Yeah. And that's what I do with films anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I just right. My my over my 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 overarching problem with it is is I just don't think there's a plot there. I don't think there's there's two hours of movie plot there that. that I've, you don't think it races um, along? No, I think it does. Considering it happens um, on one one. I think th- it, it, it feels to me, and, I, and I'm 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 absolutely putting words into other people's mouths here, but it mm-hmm. feels to me like that. Like they, they came up with this. Yeah, do you know what? Have you ever heard of those things called panic rooms? Aren't they cool? Let's make a whole film. Should we do a about film about it? it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, but I'm in, buddy. I'm in. Um, what, what about the plot? Oh, well, don't worry, it'll write itself. You know, it feels it feels like that because you know, three people breaking into a house to get into a panic room is is, mm-hmm. a, is all right. We may not have ever seen it, you know, quite you know quite as overtly on a film before, but it does feel like a fairly obvious thing. And I think isn't it just like a horror? trope well, though, like people trying to get in zombies the, trying to get into the, the cabin the invasion of somebody's house is yeah, always house invasion film always, home invasion always film. disturbing to yeah. watch you know you watch films like Strong mm. Dogs you, it's always a very disturbing concept mm. to watch but more than anything else I just think they, they they just didn't know how to end it and it's my theory about David Fincher and endings at times not in all movies but I just think at times right um, I'm going to bring up something here yeah. now which is and again we've talked about this off mic I think there is a difference here between he doesn't know to end it and he makes an ending you don't like. Well, it could well be. I mean, I, I mean, he's I, ending maybe that film. That film ends. Yeah, he does. But but it's not. It, it kind of. What do you want? I I, I don't know. <laughs> except to say he can do it because he can do a very complete beginning to end film. Like I think he does in Seven. I think he does in Fight Club. Yeah. Or then you can have the not really complete. That what wasn't sure what to do in the final act, which I feel feels like the game and right. feels like. Uh, Panic room to me. But you see, if you if I analyse that, in Seven and in Fight Club, mm. you don't know what's going to happen next. Right? Yeah. In the game, within reason, Michael Douglas's character could have a mental breakdown, it's <laughs> likely. In the game and in Panic Room, I think their lives move on perfectly for the rest of their lives. And I think... Well, 
in Fight Club and Seven, it's up in the air and it could be bad. Well, I, so I, I think, think you like a negative ending well, or a positive ending. Well, or, or, or to put it this way, I, I think he, he his, his better endings for me do end on that sort of negative vibe or, or don't quite end totally positively, let's mm. put it that way. I think when he t- tries to end it all happily, it, well, certainly in those two cases, it just doesn't seem to work for me. It, it, it just it just runs out of ideas. And, and I think Panic Room just runs out of ideas, ultimately, of where to I'm, go. I'm not disagreeing with you I think there's I think I actually think sometimes Fincher has the tension happen earlier so the, the denouement happens a bit earlier in a Fincher film yeah, not, maybe. not necessarily not necessarily actually to be fair not in Fight Club because Fight Club actually starts with the ending and then you realise it's the it's the ending and I actually think that I did think though that Tyler Durden reveal was actually slightly earlier than I remembered it being because it's actually Helena Bonham Carter's character who goes come on Tyler I think that's the first time that you realise that they're the same person. I, I think that he Fincher deals so much with tension that it can't go on forever. And so his denouement actually comes. Because the Forest Whitaker getting caught by the police is not the denouement. The panic is actually... The panic in the panic room is to do with Jodie Foster. Mm. And she's actually okay by that point. Well, I suppose she's about to get killed by Raoul. You could say that might be. That's the classic double ending, like in um, uh, Fatal Attraction. You think someone's dead and then they come back again, or like a horror ending, you know? Yeah. But, but actually, the end end with Forrest Whisker getting caught is a bit of a... I get that. It's a bit of a come down. Nothing Whereas really... it could just end with Raoul, Forrest Whisker shooting Raoul and getting away. We'd actually be quite happy, wouldn't we, if... Whisker got away with his bonds because well, we we've developed as a as a viewer we've developed a I, I don't think, don't hate him quite as yeah, so much. Yeah, I mean he's clearly <laughs> he, he's he's clearly sort of made out to be the voice of reason out there, isn't he? Mm. Um, but but voice of reason, wow, out of uh, that three. Yeah. yeah, well he's the only one that probably <laughs> isn't a killer, shall we say? Yeah. Um, but but yeah, his his sort of demise at the end is is just so unsatisfying ultimately. Yeah, it's just a stupid way that he just gets caught. Yeah. Like that. Um, yeah, I agree. I don't necessarily mind the idea, by the way, of the inversion of, of the, the bad guys ending up in the panic room and Jodie Foster. And no, Chris. I quite like that. I don't mind Especially that. Especially because Sarah's trapped um, in there. But, but if you're going to say to me, that's the, that's the, that's the twist, that's the reveal, like, that's the bit where Tyler Durden is revealed to be Edward North. I don't then, think then, it is. And I would say that that is not in the same league. Let's face um, it, the better reveal would have been, there's nothing in there. Which is what you think it is for a second. He opens the safe in the floor and it's got it's got a fake bottom, has it? So I'm like, oh my god, we've had two hours of this and there's nothing in there. What was the point? Who's going to get killed now? That would have been a bolder ending. Or than could it have been something other than? Money. Could it have been other something other than money? I don't know what. I don't know. Could, I, mean, I just like the idea of them doing all of that for no reason. Well, maybe, maybe, yeah. <laughs> would be fun. Uh, but I, 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 I just, I think that it just. It's rather like the game I said meanders from one thing to another. I think when you see people trying to get in a so panic room again, and, again and again and again, yeah. well, it's just that you've got to vary it. I mean, it, but you it, can't vary a panic room film. Well, you could. You, you just didn't. Now, don't ask but, me. But it's all still in the panic room. Are you saying they should have come back another day? Um, it's, it's, it's the whole point is it's a time-based experience. It is, but I, I, I think it's lazy script writing to just oh. say to just say. Um, no, it has to be them trying to get in and they keep trying different ways and this, that, and the other, and arguing amongst themselves. And I just think, mm, yeah, I, I, I think you need more need more than that. Okay, I, I disagree because I think I'm asking for something different than you from this movie. I don't need Fight Club again. 
That film exhausted me. No, absolutely. Me. And I enjoyed I- this as just a straight procedural. So t- talking of the puzzle... The, the, the puzzle is getting into the the puzzle of this film is just getting into the the it's literally a physical um yeah crystal maze puzzle yeah. how do we get into that room or how does she get out because of course our protagonist is female and is Jodie Foster one thing I wanted to mention because I'd said it earlier the other technological feat that I see in this film that I hadn't seen in previous Fincher films is this whole you know the camera moving through that very expensive shot where the camera moves all the way through the panic room and then ends up at the keyhole and that's when Forrest Whitaker's trying to get in it it's a beautifully shot introduction to the next part of the plot do you remember it it's mm. like a and apparently it was a it was actually sewn together and it wasn't like now I think you'd use a drone or, or something and they obviously didn't have that technology in 2002 they might have done um and it was very complicated expensive cgi yeah, okay. and that's not something I think of Fincher using and you can start to see that he's using his budget slightly differently now Mm. which is he did use effects in fight club and he does use color grade and things like that but here he was actually employing cgi which is not something that you would see he doesn't make marvel films no um so i wanted to i wanted to kind of mention how we get into 2002 and we've gone over the capitalist hump now capitalism won by the way, Ed Norton, <laughs> who knows? Um, and so now, apparently, like looking at Wikipedia, apparently, like loads of people, loads of rich people were getting safe rooms. Although that's honestly, who's reading those articles? Other rich people. I'm not you, reading articles find, about safe rooms. I mean, do you know what you find really sort of like um, curious about all this is mm. is the very disenfranchisement that you see in sort of Fight Club with. Wealth, presumably wealthy people mm. selling shit to mm. middle class and, and poor people, mm. the, the, the shit that they don't really need but buy anyway. Um, the, the, the inverse of that, which I think Fincher does explore, is the, 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 the people that actually do the selling aren't sort of riding around in their Lamborghinis laughing, they're just sitting at home in their cold, dark mansions alone. Uh, apparently, oh, yeah, um, had... according to the game and panic yeah. room, anyway. He he simultaneously fetishizes wealth and condemns it. He's well, like, look at all these beautiful things you can have, and why the fuck aren't you enjoying them? Well, I, I do think he synonymizes wealth with loneliness in some respects. Isn't um, it? yeah. Yeah, and that'll come up in other things as well. Mm. Yeah, you've got a point. Or, or a coldness, but that's that could be again about class as well. It's it's notable that upper class people are known for being colder, or certainly stereotypically. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Sean Penn, comrades enjoying wealth. He's having a great time. I'm just I'm just thinking about yeah. the wealthy characters. Well, it's, it's, in it's, it's, it's a very it's a it's a classic Hollywood Charles Foster Kane trope, isn't it? With the the, the lonely billionaire yeah. in his mansion, but um, you know. But Jodie Foster's not not that. She's been put in that position. Yes, she's lucky enough that she married a very wealthy person, but also the film is her story of taking control. I mean, Literally a, and figuratively. I mean, the thing about that is she's buying a new property for herself and her and her daughter. Yeah. 
Uh, don't know why she needs 10 bedrooms. Why, why she need 10 bedrooms and five floors? <laughs> well, the estate um, agent says so you can have another family. Yeah, and it's like, uh, maybe she's thinking well, that, but big, she's certainly not thinking about it well, quite that. Yeah, what, like, I just think she's rich. Well, she's going to have 12, 12 kids, because that's what she's going to do. Well, they can all have um, their own floor. She's going to adopt a lot, I assume. <laughs> Animals, um, I don't know. I mean, I could sort of accept it a little bit with Michael Douglas, because it's like a family home, so it's like being passed down. Generational wealth, and also yeah. he's a banker. Uh, yeah. but, but she's going out there to buy this, and I'm like... Would a four-bedroom... Well, maybe she's trying to punish her husband. Would a four-bedroom duplex in Manhattan... I don't think bad? Fincher cast as asper- <laughs> cast, casts aspersions no. on her no, as much he as either. he does other No, I, I don't think he does either. He's sympathetic I, to I don't her. think he does either. It's just, it's just, yeah. This is just me querying why... But that's the point. Why, that's the moral why, of the story. Why? Why? why yeah. If you if you seem a little bit sort of lonely and 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 withdrawn why anyway, why are you buying yeah. a giant echoey yeah. property? But anyway. But the moral of the story is: let's look for small places. That's mm. the joke when mm. they're looking in the um, classifieds yeah, column at the very studio. end of the film. So the moral lesson that Jodie Foster learned at the end of this was: don't have a really big house when you don't need one, and don't get a panic room so, when you don't need one. Although she apparently didn't. Need well, one. no, yeah, it, everything would have been fine except for the thing being put in the panic room. But then, if you're burying something that you don't want other people to get, you would put it there. It's Probably, the most yeah. sensible place. Um, I I wonder as well if you don't identify with her as a protagonist in a way that you've just yeah but not just a woman her actual situation which is often the case with women distant to me in the sense of she's incredibly wealthy and there's divorce she doesn't doesn't seem to have a job she's a woman who's relying on her husband she even has to call her husband to come around and save Mm. her um, yeah, there's a, there's a degree she, of. Well, yeah. I also think that she has a degree of life independence that I've certainly never experienced. I mean, I, I you know. But she's like, she's a single person in an apartment, which is what kind of you are as well—an unmarried person um, in, but she doesn't in have an to apartment. Haul ass to some bloody office job every day. No, way. neither do you because it's a pandemic. But, yeah, uh, I have to, I have <laughs> to be at, my, to at my dining, dining table, nine thirty, <laughs> maybe nine forty-five every morning. Yeah, but what I mean is, is it just an unconscious bias on your part that you, the previous um, film, you said mm. you didn't want to be punched, but you still res, it still res, Tyler Durden and Edward Norton still resonated with you. Well, I didn't see yeah, you saying I, mean, I really identify with Marla Singer. No, that's true. Um, okay, yeah, I mean, there's a point there about me being mm. a guy. And, and therefore it being aimed at me and maybe mm. identify with... Do I really identify with any of that? I, I don't really know, quite frankly. It still feels mm. a million miles away. But I can sort of see how certain segments of society, I can sort of see how that's going on. This, is, I suppose, is slightly different in that it represents an existence which I would, would never be necessarily desirable to me. So it, doesn't, it wouldn't matter on the gender uh, of the protagonist? No, I don't think You're it would. Like, so does that would. mean you don't... Um, identify with Michael Douglas either. No, then. I don't. Right, yeah, it's the okay. same thing, which is, which is yeah. great having all this money, but yeah. what's the point, really? Because I think my take on things, and again, this might be because I'm of a category that's more disenfranchised than yours is in cinema, hmm. is that you try and, as I said earlier in the podcast, you try and identify with someone in the film, and sometimes you have to throw gender out the window because you're only given male protagonists. But I did identify with her, even though I don't have the life either Mm. that she has. But I identified with the threat as a woman of men. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. And that's very much, this is Uh, about, uh, like, the the scariness is to be um, a single woman. I think that's fair enough. I also think just in general, as we mentioned before, 
that any kind of any kind of threat of home invasion is is inherently terrifying, and whenever you see it on screen, it is always quite disturbing to watch. Um, and I think whether you're a man or a woman doesn't really matter at that point. Um, yes, anyone can, but that's why I think it was so successful mm. because a home invasion movie is an exciting date mm. movie or family movie or what have you. Anyone can go and see it and still have fun. And I think that it's almost more important to me in a way that David Fincher made this film after Fight Club than if it was a female director because he brought a male audience that he had got from this cult male classic back to the cinema for a film saying, I make entertaining films for you, irrespective of mm. the gender of the characters involved. Yeah. But then you have your take on it, which is, you know, it wasn't as interesting. Which is true. It's true. It's not a good, as good a film as I, 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 I will say this. I, I, I am not... It's not not interesting because it's got yeah. two primary female characters. Mm. It's not interesting because I just think it's poorly written. Um, and, so and, your issue is with the script. Yeah. What do I have an issue with it? No, because I just think that it's it's not as much, it's not as groundbreaking as many of his other films. But what I would say is that he empowered women on screen in a way you don't see that often. Let me ask you this: if you if it had been two men in the panic room, yeah, would you have been less inclined? Yes, I genuinely it? think I do. Or would you have had a different view on on sort of the film? It would does you, a lower who, opinion it does of it. It does depend, or? and if it was a gay couple or something, yeah, it does depend on on who it was. Yeah. Uh, um, this is the issue. When you're the disenfranchised group, right, I think that I'm allowed a little bit of leeway in the sense that I want it to be representative of my group because it doesn't happen very much. Yeah. If we got to parity in all films, then I wouldn't be in a position to say, well, why well, Why are you not liking it as much when it's two men, you sexist? <laughs> but do you see what I mean? But I think for now, because of the novelty factor and because it's destroying stereotypes of women being completely incapable of fending for themselves. But still, think... she was she, fend for, she fended for herself in a realistic way, could I thought, you, apart from her understanding level, of the phone wires. Could you level a criticism at, at Fincher there that he is deliberately putting um, two women in danger there? No, because of the way they handle themselves. Yes, to every other film that's done that. Oh, damsel in distress. Yeah. No, they're not damsels in distress. They're certainly in distress, but they're not damsels. Even with the stuff that Kristen Stewart gets to do, we haven't even really talked about her much. She's very good, her character, even though she's certainly the more um, placid one, mostly because she's, like, dying or having for half the movie. But she does some quite clever thinking. Fincher does a lot of camera work of her eye point of... I need to get those needles, I need to hide those needles, I might use those needles to stab someone. He's very good at establishing that both mother and daughter would defend themselves if necessary. And she is like this teeny tiny scrawny character. Um, No, because because he takes that narrative and turns it into... A woman can fight, but she just has to be clever about it because she knows she can't necessarily use physical strength. But like you said, with Raoul and the the hand in the door, she can use the physical strength of the things around her. Fire, electricity, you know? It's like it's... The, the, the intelligence is not the dominion of only one gender. Mm. Um, but he does it in a way where... She's never forced into doing something, which, and I'm not saying this is unrealistic, but it's not the the type of this film. She doesn't have to be Kill Bill. She doesn't have to, um, like, use martial arts or anything. Everything she does is still within, like, the capabilities of a normal woman. Yeah. 
Um, no, we could say her calling her husband, but then her husband is the father of her child. No, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, be... I think, I think... No, I'm, but I'm saying, should I have a problem with it? Because that is a woman calling her... A divorced woman calling her ex-husband. Her really, I, I, I don't... Why is she not calling I mean, my, my advice would be yeah. overlook that and she's just calling the first pissing yeah. number on her phone, which she, well, there's no reason yeah. why that wouldn't be on her. The question is, should Raoul have been played by a woman? How good would that have been? Well, there you go. If you had a complete psycho bitch character, that would well, be Well, is that amazing. because... Is that because... Shouldn't even say bitch, that's sexist. Well, is, 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 that, is, that because the, 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 is that because the threat factor is men sort of preying on women here? Yes, and because he, he looks like he'd be a rapist, yeah, mm. and murderer. Well, yes... Um, yeah, but maybe one of them, maybe one of them could be. Yes, I think to be honest, Raoul is such a powerful character. It's better in a way that he is a man because of that women way, being fearful. By the way, can I just observe one thing about yeah. Raoul, which I thought was a mistake in the film, and, I, and I, what, the first time I saw it, and I still think it's a mistake now. Yeah, I do not think they should have unmasked him. Yeah, I was just going to say, mm. or not until the very end, maybe, mm. and then he should have been Brad Pitt. <laughs> I think it, it, it's the classic: what you don't see scares you a lot more than what you do, and uh, you know. Well, so Dwight Yoakam, I don't think he should be called Raoul. Is that a <laughs> racism check-in? Casual racism check-in? Well, it may not be his real name. That's he's a oh, he's trying to call killer. him like a call tough him. Latino well, no, name. No, he's just like yeah. Free, free, I kind of like that. Yeah, as far as you're concerned, my name's Raoul. You yeah, ain't know my real it's name. It's actually Ray. It's actually yeah, Ralph. Yeah. Billy. Ron. Billy Psycho <laughs> is my name, really. Like, yeah, he's a very menacing character. And he gets more menacing and it does a little bit more and a little bit more. And I, I really like that because that adds to the threat. But um, no, I think this is an important film. Is it the most enjoyable of his catalogue? No, it's towards the bottom, unfortunately. Mm. Um, although I'd still say there are other ones we're getting to, which which might be better. And, all, and like, it depends on what you're talking about as well. If you're talking about a good time at the cinema, I, I saw Fight Club at the cinema. I did not see Panic Room at the cinema. I probably came away from Fight Club going, wow, but that was stressful. And I actually think if you want a good time at the cinema, David Fincher delivered it, which is the same as the game. I think Seven and Fight Club are wanting to, to say something. The game is as well, but in, in, it, I don't think that's its primary intention. Seven and Fight Club, their primary intention is to, to tell you something, make you think about something. But the game yeah. and Panic Room are just entertainment primarily. Mm. Yeah, this is where I think that Fincher may be better off when he when he, he has a yeah when he point, goes out when he has a, some sort of point. point. Yeah. Um, and I think he ties it. He can tie yeah. that up. I think when he doesn't, it, it kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I just think he's like, how, oh, am I, how am I ending this? <laughs> but if he didn't get all the money that he made for Panic Room, he may not have then been able to make. Like he's obviously savvy enough to know what people want. It must be like this is the most high level problem. If we're talking about class, right? You have poor people, middle class people, rich people, and then you have film directors who are honestly in a league of their own. Yeah, Very few of them, mostly men, and they get to make these huge decisions about something which will affect a lot of people's lives. He's thinking in his career, I kind of need a hit, because the game and Fight Club, they've made money, but not much. They weren't considered commercial successes, and that makes perfect sense because they're a bit out there. And then he comes in, and he makes four times the budget on this. So maybe some of it was just like, and and it, and they cost less. So he was he he was given less money because they were definitely falling out of love. Maybe studios with him. They're like, you got to make a hit, and then he's like, I know how to make a thriller. Here you go. Well, maybe because it maybe. isn't particularly the most radical thing about Panic Room is it stars two women. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, I th- I think that's the thing. I mean, my it. it 
like the, the phrase to me is run of the mill. That's what it, that's yeah. what it feels like. It, it, it could have really been done by the procedural. I, I think when I, when I compare it to some of Finch's other films yes. that, that just seem so original, that this feels like wow. I'm pretty sure I could have written and, and directed this. Yeah, but I think that, that that's with 18 years of hindsight. I think it yeah. was radical to have I don't a female know. protagonist. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Who, who was, sorry, who, who kind of fought back? Who won, but didn't win by being Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, who was just absolutely pathetic in that film. Final Girl, my ass. She just sits in a wardrobe and goes, ah! Like, I just... I just rewatching that film was like a revelation of, like... She gets better as they get on, I'm guessing. <laughs> um, but this is actually a smart heroine who's, who's just about not a Mary Sue. And so for that, I am grateful and also really needed some Bechdel passing. <laughs> uh, and there we are. We've now done the first four movies. First four movies. Thank you for making it to the end of part one of our David Fincher podcast. We'll be coming back with a second part with the remaining five films reviewed by Nick and myself. I look forward to you listening next time. See ya.